All right. Welcome, everybody. Episode number 23 of Sports Cards Live. Thanks, everybody, for joining. I uh, really appreciate it. We have a great show tonight. Couldn't be more excited, actually, if you couldn't tell online already. Um, based on what I've been putting out there, this is going to be a really informative and uh, very interesting discussion with Paul Lesko coming up very shortly. Before we bring out Paul, though, I do want to uh, acknowledge that the uh, episode 22 from Wednesday uh, with Steve Grad from Beckett Authentication Services and veteran over, uh, actually now it's 130 episodes of Pawn Stars. Uh, I had technical difficulties towards the end of the episode and was actually, uh, I, I left the show uh, prematurely there and couldn't get back in. So I just wanted to apologize to all the viewers for that, that were uh, still with us at that time. And I want to apologize to Steve for that. And I also want to shout out uh, that Steve does do a regular Tuesday night uh, live streaming show on YouTube on the Beckett Live Presents channel with host Eric Norton. So I want to just, you know, point everybody out to that. Go check that out if you have a chance. They do a great job. Interesting show. I watch it quite regularly and I uh, just want to recommend that to everybody. So uh, again, apologize for those technical difficulties. I am now hardwired in, so um, that should not be an issue tonight or any episode moving forward. If this is your first time joining and watching Sports Cards Live, thank you for coming. Thank you, Paul, for uh, tweeting out the show. Anyone who came to watch Paul, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm really happy to have you. If you haven't yet, um, if you're watching on Facebook and you uh, haven't done this before, Look at the ticker down below. Please go to streamyard.com slash Facebook. Click on that big blue button and we will get your comments on the screen. We've already had several coming in, some questions coming in from various uh, various Facebook groups and such. So we're going to get to almost all the questions that we can tonight. So please be patient as we get. Sometimes we get to the questions a few minutes after we've talked about the topic because of the delay. But hey, we'll get to everything. I uh, also want to let everybody, everybody know, um, on Wednesday, my guest on Sports Cards Live, episode number 24, is going to be Chris McGill. Chris is one of the co-hosts of House of Jordans, an amazing YouTube channel. Check that out. And a co-founder of Card Ladder, a new valuation service, uh, online valuation service in the hobby, cardladder.com. You can check that out. And uh, come join me on Wednesday with Chris. We'll be talking all about that, among other things. Uh, July 8th, my guest is a gentleman by the name of Adam. He goes by the Real 27 guy, high-end basketball collector. It's going to be a really interesting conversation about basically collecting, a, a passionate collector. Really excited about that. And then on July 15th, just booked today, will be um, Grant Sandground, who is a senior product manager at Upper Deck. He will be joining me on July the 15th. So check that one out as well. All right. Tonight. My guest is Paul Lesko. Paul is an attorney at law, he received his law degree from Tulane University in New Orleans in 1999. So we have a real lawyer joining us today. A lot of you watching probably know this already. He does plaintiff work. He assists individuals and small companies whose rights have been violated by larger corporations. Really interesting stuff. He practices the areas of complex litigation, class action, and intellectual property. Very interesting with respect to sports cards and the legal landscape that's going on there. So let's bring out Paul without any further ado. And Paul, welcome to Sports Cards Live, episode number 23. Super happy to have you. How are you doing tonight, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure, man. Been really excited to have you come on. 
So listen, I mean, you've, in my opinion, you're the preeminent uh, legal analyst for the hobby. You're, you're a lawyer. You actually take quite an interest in your profession as it applies to the hobby, following all the cases that are available to you to read up on the USA's federal court system. Really interesting stuff. You, for a while, you wrote for Cardboard Connection for about five years from 2011 to 2017. And now, basically, if anybody wants to really follow what you're doing and your commentary, they need to follow you on Twitter. I'm going to put that up right now for you and for everybody watching. So now on the ticker there, that's Paul's Twitter account. That's where Paul really lives on the internet. You're not going to find him many other places. So check him out on Twitter, follow him, and he will keep you as up to date as he can. Paul, listen, I mean, there's a lot, we, we've got about seven or eight topics we're going to discuss tonight. We're going to finish it off at the end. I'll just give people a sneak preview. The last topic we're going to discuss is what's going on with Project 2020, TOPS Project 2020. Not so much from a, a, where there's any legal actions outstanding yet anyway, but you're also, you're also really into it. You, you love it. You're collecting it. And I want, I want the people to, to really feel your passion for that along with what your concerns are. So, but that'll come up at the end. The first case we're going to discuss right now today is going to be the Panini Redemptions case. Really asking the question, are redemptions legal? Redemptions are a huge issue in the hobby. We all, we all, they're kind of something, they're like a necessary evil. We all, we, we, we tolerate them, but we don't like them. There's nothing worse than opening up a pack of cards or a tin of cards at a high price point and seeing a white a white decoy with a sticker on it saying, you know, here, scratch this off and enter it into a website. So why don't you lay out the foundation for us? What is this case about? What is the plaintiff's sort of claim here? And uh, where are things at with that one? Sure. And, and you know, just uh, for all the topics that we're going to be discussing tonight is, you know, some of the most current lawsuits that are uh, ongoing in the, in, in the industry. And this is a very litigious industry. Uh, there, there are a lot of lawsuits. There's always something to talk about. So just want to give everybody the most current uh, information that's out there uh, on these lawsuits. So the uh, redemption lawsuit, uh, it was filed by an individual uh, with the last name Brashear. Uh, he filed his lawsuit against Panini in Texas, alleging that uh, Panini's, uh, their redemption uh, program uh, is, is not legal. Uh, there were a number of challenges that he uh, issued. Some had to do with the timing of uh, uh, redemptions where he alleged that Panini said you would get uh, cards within a certain time frame and just would blow well past that. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that. In fact, I had an outstanding redemption for well over five years. So uh, everybody can relate to that. Uh, he also uh, had challenges to the legitimacy of redemptions period. Uh, so there was a, a lot of what angers people in the industry about redemptions. Uh, he, he raised those issues. And it, it's something that people have talked about for a long time. Are these legal? We understand that you need to have redemptions. We we do understand the process, but it's just when you get a good redemption or you buy a redemption uh, off of eBay, uh, you're looking forward to it, and then you get you know six months later down the road or a year later down the road, it gets substituted out for some player you don't even collect that you don't even want. Uh, I mean, it's it's just kind of a little kick in the teeth. So uh, the lawsuit, uh, uh, typically with what happens in any lawsuit when they're filed, is the defendant will say, "Hey, judge." Uh, this this case shouldn't even be in court. You should kick it out. And there's invariably, they, they, there's always two ways that the defendants say you need to get rid of this case. Number one, 
the case doesn't even belong here. You you don't have what's called jurisdiction over this case. You if you would make a ruling, it doesn't even apply. It wouldn't even hold to us. So you need to get rid of the case the case that way. So that's how to win procedurally. The other way that the defendants uh, will move to dismiss a case is by saying, but you know, even if the case belongs here, what we're doing is completely legal. There's nothing illegal about what we're doing. So Panini filed their motion to dismiss and it raised both challenges. Uh, it, it said redemptions are legal. Uh, so you know you, you should get rid of the case for that for that reason. But procedurally, the case shouldn't even be here. And it was, it was an interesting challenge because Brashear wasn't suing just on his own behalf. He wasn't suing because I have my one redemption and I want it fulfilled or I want the correct card. He was suing uh, as a class action. He was basically suing on behalf of every single person who ever received a Panini redemption. So uh, in order to do that, uh, to have uh, jurisdiction in a federal court, uh, the plaintiff needs to show in their filing that this happened to over a hundred other people, and that it uh, had that the value of the case exceeds five million dollars. So uh, Panini says, you know, from the complaint, you can't see this. We only have one person. He points to a couple websites where other people complain about this, but you can't make a good assessment of it. So uh, this uh, motion sat out there for almost a year. And uh, the, the ruling came down uh, within the last about a month ago. And uh, in the ruling, uh, the judge did dismiss the case. But like we would like to know, are redemptions legal? The judge did not touch that issue. The judge dismissed the case for procedural reasons only. He said, hey, I can't tell that this case is worth $5 million. Sure, you're pointing to some cards. You say they're high value, but I can't even tell if there's a thousand people that have been hurt by this. You know, and as part of the hobby, we realize more than a thousand people have received these cards. Uh, whether it's over $5 million, people will debate about it. But I, I would think that there's probably at least $5 million over the years worth of harm here. But the judge says, hey, I, I'm not a collector. I don't know this. The burden of proof is always on the plaintiff and he didn't show me that. So I'm gonna dismiss this case for that reason. And I'm not going to touch the actual merits of the case. I'm not gonna say if redemptions are illegal or not because you're not, you're not even properly here. So that was, you know, it, it's kind of one of those issues where everybody wants to know, not just collectors, but the manufacturers want that confirmation too. They want an order out there saying, hey, redemptions are legal, just so it quells a lot of the, the hubbub that's in the hobby about, oh no, another redemption. This is this has got to be illegal. Screw these guys. You know, they, they would really like to get, get an order like that. And uh, it looks like we're denied that, uh, at least for now. Now, the judge said, you can refile this case. If you think that you can refile this case, go ahead and do it. Well, we're past 30 days. I have not seen a refiling of this case, uh, at least in federal court. Uh, federal courts are easier to look at. Uh, federal courts, all their filings are in one system. So I can look at any filing in any federal court and determine that. If Brashear refiled this case in state court, I don't know that yet, So, uh, but I would suspect he didn't file this in state court. I think if we do see it again, it would be in federal court and because there hasn't been a new filing. I, I suspect at least this round of our redemptions legal is probably over. So the fact that he didn't refile and the fact that the judge didn't render a decision, is that going to make it less likely that, you know, somebody else could could start a suit like this and, and try and get that answer? Like, is does it discourage subsequent collectors or, or just individuals, whomever they may be from filing again? 
It certainly does because lawsuits are not inexpensive. So if you're going to get a lawsuit, get a lawyer interested in filing a lawsuit, the best way to do it would be on a contingency basis, meaning you're not paying the hourly fee. The lawyer, if he wins the case, ultimately gets a cut of whatever judgment there is. When it comes to an individual who may have 10, 15, maybe even 100 redemptions that haven't been uh, uh, redeemed, uh, that's not a case a lawyer is going to take on contingency because they're not going to they're going to lose money in a case like that. So the only way that a lawyer would take a contingency case like this is if it's a class action. If the plaintiff class is everybody who ever bought a Panini redemption. So in you know, so looking at it that way from a procedural standpoint, yes, it's probably going to limit the number of people that are, that are going to want to sue. But there's, it doesn't do away with the issue. If somebody does believe that they've been harmed, uh, they, they, there's no answer to the question whether redemptions are illegal or not. So there's still that temptation out there. But this certainly does take a lot of the steam out of the sails for somebody who'd want to do it. Sure. Now, I know you're not a judge, but I want to I want to get a feel for your opinion still. Like, you know, when you buy a box of cards, you don't know what's in there anyway. It's all a mystery. Now, if one of those cards you get is a white decoy with a sticker on it saying scratch here and entered into our website and you're going to get that card later on um, and it has the player's name on it and you maybe you do get that card within the expiry, uh, within, the, within the time that it's, the card is still valid and hasn't yet expired, um, sounds okay to me. But if it, I, I see two issues. One, the athlete doesn't return his autographs, therefore the, the, the manufacturer cannot fulfill that redemption. Or number two, um, you buy that product after the redemptions have expired, and now you've, you, you know, it, if it's a big, if it's one of the hits in, the, in that particular box or case or what have you, and you are just not entitled to it anymore because of it, it's expired, that I think, it, I, I see an issue with that. Um, in your opinion, like, are, is there a legal case for for that sort of situation? Like, what do, what do you think? If you can't get the card that is on that is named, and they switch it out for somebody else, or it's expired, is that uh, something that do you feel the plaintiff had a case? I when it comes to the uh, you got two issues there, and I'll I'll do the uh, expiration uh, first. I think uh, expiration of uh, redemptions. I don't think that's legal. Uh, I, you know, can analogize it to gift cards. Uh, there, you know, there was a time when manufacturers tried to get gift cards that would expire, and uh, you know, at least you know, there's legislation in the U.S. that says no, it's it's not how it's going to work. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I think when it comes to redemptions, there, it's it's pretty similar. You bought a product. Within that product, there is a IOUA card. It's not an IOUA card, and if I act in two years, you can have it. Because really, whether that redemption is going to be fulfilled is solely within the control of the manufacturer. So, I mean, I can make promises all the time. Hey, I'm going to give you a million bucks in two years, or I won't. I mean, you, you, that's not it's not how it works. So, I think when it comes to the expiration dates, uh, I, I don't think that's legal. Now, when it comes to uh, not fulfilling a contract because, say, the athlete uh, doesn't uh, sign or something along those lines, that's a little bit, I think, a trickier issue uh, because I think that's you know, if it's impossible for uh, Panini or somebody else to fulfill uh, the obligation because the athlete's just not signing. Uh, what's the manufacturer to do in that instance? So I think when it comes to impossibility, then the best thing you could do is, you know, find a substitute. I think that the, the real problem though is 
manufacturers aren't the most open about this. They just, hey, here you go. Here's your substitute. They really should be more uh, open and and you'll see that's a theme uh, throughout, you know, most of, you know, my concerns about cases is just that manufacturers and, and all large companies, they like to be a black box. They don't want you to look behind the curtains and it, it's dumb. No, it's, it is no secret. You're not going to get hurt for that. But I mean, how much would it hurt to say, Hey, we had a contract with this guy. He's not fulfilling it. I mean, we want to fill it, fulfill it with, with for you, but he's not going to do it. So what can we do? How can we make this better for you? I, I, I think that when you have a lot more discourse, um, uh, and a lot more information sharing, you get a lot of the hurt feelings are gone because uh, I mean, part of it passes the blame from the manufacturer to the athlete. But uh, I, I don't think manufacturers want to do that. There's a limited number of athletes. Uh, if you take an athlete off enough, they might not want to ever sign for you again. So it's it's a difficult situation. Um, you know, not to tap, you know, it, the most annoying and most common uh, lawyer answer for a question is, it depends. <laughs> so when it comes to a non-expired redemption and you get a separate card, do I think that's legal? No, it, it, it depends. <laughs> yes, sir. Typical lawyer, typical lawyer. So I really like what you said about the transparency. I, you know, I find it, with anybody, any relationship you have, the more transparent, the more, uh, the easier the relationship's going to be, whether it's, you know, B2B, B2C, or, or just a uh, person to person. Is there anything that these manufacturers could do um, in terms of putting some wording on the on the exterior, the packaging that basically says, hey, you might hit a redemption. And by the way, if you do hit a redemption, uh, you may not get the player named. And if you don't get the player named, you might get something else you, you don't want. I'm not saying all these words, but, you know, in legal speak, you know, shorten it. And also, you know, um, if it if they expire, well, or maybe they just have to say that they don't expire because you feel that that isn't legal. I guess my question is, is there anything that they could put on that box that would help them manage the fact that they have to use redemptions? And I do think manufacturers, some of them, I do think they have to have redemptions because you are at the at, you're, you're at the mercy of the athletes. Are they going to have time to sign these cards and get them back to you? So kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of agree with the way that you even worded it. I mean, have something on there open about, you know, we, yeah, we as manufacturers, we don't like redemptions either. When we put together these checklists, you know, six months beforehand, we have the best intention of actually having everybody sign this. I mean, I'm not one of those conspiracy nuts who thinks that, oh, we never even had a chance of getting a redemption. Uh, getting this guy to sign, so we're just going to throw it in a redemption just to sell it. I think manufacturers are, you know, for the most part, they try to deliver a good product with everything that's in there. I don't think they're trying to hide the ball. Uh, so I think a heartfelt explanation like, hey, it kills us that sometimes you're going to get a redemption and we're going to try like hell to make sure we fulfill that redemption. Sometimes things just don't work out. And if it doesn't work out, we'll try and do right by you. We'll try and get you something else. I mean, I, you know, I think that endears uh, the consumers to, to, to the manufacturer. So why not try it? You know, worst case scenario, I mean, you know, people make fun of you. It's, 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 it, and it just keep on doing, I mean, and really just keep on doing the same course of business that you've been doing to now. Okay, man. All right. So I'm going to go through some of the comments that have been pouring in so far. Uh, anyone who's watching Sports Cars Live for the first time, first of all, thank you very much. Paul, thank you for tweeting it and bringing some new viewers here. I do appreciate it. I do ask everybody, if you don't mind, on YouTube to, to subscribe to the channel. Almost to 500 subscribers, and then we get to start the march to 1,000. So, uh, you know, from hero to zero here, possibly uh, tonight even. But thanks, everyone, for that. Um, 
we're going to look at some of the comments now. Wayne from the Ice Box. I'll be watching that one. Paul's great. So that came out, out a bit earlier. Looking forward to it as always. Thank you, Paul. Josh, yep. Uh, Paul Paul is definitely another great guest. Uh, lots of Pauls here. Paul, evening crew is on hand. Brian Gray, Leaf is going to win. We will be getting to your... We will be getting to your case shortly, Brian. It's number he's three never, on our list. So. confidence, is he? <laughs> yeah, no, he's a confident guy for sure. BG, stick around. We're definitely getting to it. Uh, Bill, hot chocolate and hobby talk, a great way to spend an evening. And uh, Paul, Bill is actually the person that I mentioned to you yesterday, who is the guy who kind of keeps uh, us informed on Hobby Insider about what you're tweeting about. So thanks Perfect. for that, Bill. Uh, Brian, just, just got here. You get this or, okay, yeah, you're good. Georgetown, Welcome to the show, Paul. Litigation, America's second favorite pastime. Uh, Michelangelo, what, what about lawsuits with sports photographers when you get a chance? No rush. So put that in the back of your mind, Paul. We'll come back to that. Um, hey, guys, the Currency Project, Abdul, welcome to the show. It was nice chatting with you the other day. Chris from House of Jordans. House of Jordans, another reason to love sports cards live. I get to hear about sports cards and learn about the procedural aspects of class action lawsuits. Two of my favorite worlds combined. Chris, just like Paul, Chris is also, I believe, an aspiring lawyer or recently uh, called to the bar lawyer. So congrats on that, Chris, and welcome to the show. And Chris is my guest uh, on Wednesday. So that'll be really exciting. Chris is the uh, one of the co-hosts of House of Jordans, another uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels and co-founder of Card Ladder. So guys, check that out. Uh, maybe it's Christine. It's either Christina or, or Chris or Brian. Uh, nope, just Chris. Welcome to the show, Chris, as always. Okay, uh, while they're talking to each other, we'll skip ahead. Austin says, not only do the redemptions have a short redeeming period, they make it really difficult when trying to get it replaced, especially those raffles in Toronto. Well, I hear that comment, Austin. Um, I, I do want to give a little bit of credit just because they're at least they try to do something. I think they recognize that it's not optimal and that it, it it's not something that the, the collectors and the customers like. And I don't know what their restrictions are, but I do think that doing something is better than nothing. Although I do agree, it is certainly not optimal. Uh, Amish Dave, welcome to the show. Georgetown Vintage says, in the USA, are there any regulators for the card industry to oversee the issues that you are discuss discussing, such as expiration or substitutes? Paul, why don't you take that one? There, there, there really aren't other than uh, the court system or there, there, there really is no regulation uh, on this industry. Uh, I mean, it's if it gets too close to gambling, uh, which it, it tries to stay away from, uh, there would be. But no, it, it's really an uh, autonomous industry. Yeah, we are, we are a self-regulating industry and uh, and th there's a lot of people that do a great job at it. So um, thank you to all the collectors who are constantly looking for um, altered, trimmed cards, fake patches. Uh, you know, shilling and all that kind of stuff. All right, Brian says, right on. Thanks for your channel. I've been enjoying it. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it very much. Also says, I redeemed a few in early March. Not here yet. Yeah, they often do take time, sometimes up to five years, as Paul said earlier. Yep. Scott says, I noticed on some upper deck boxes, now they say may contain a time-sensitive redemption. Well, that's a step in the right direction, I believe, in disclosing that what is in there is time-sensitive because if you're going to buy one of these boxes off the shelf at a card shop, you know, after that redemption period is expired, at least you know, and hopefully the shop owner knows uh, when that redemption expiry date was. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, can probably go into more information there and just say exactly what it is and how long you have to buy it. So if somebody looks at and sees 2017 on there and it's a two-year expiration date, they, they know, okay, well, I'm, I'm, 
use my money elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, instead of saying time sensitive, I would much prefer to see the actual date, just like he got on a carton of milk. Yeah. Yeah. Austin says, what are your thoughts on the massive amounts of paper slash ink the manufacturers waste when they produce the useless base cards that 95% of people don't want? Well, <laughs> that's... Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take that for a second, Austin. My thoughts are, and I've all, you know, some manufacturers have gone to baseless, you know, hit only products. I think that there is still a market for, uh, for, for base cards. And I'll tell you what I do with them. I package them up in team bags at 10 and I give them out on Halloween. I've been doing that since about 2007. So I recommend that to anybody watching. If you've got a stack of base cards and you can't really sell them anywhere, you know, just give them away to kids. There's uh, lots of opportunities to do that. Halloween is awesome. I'm a very popular house at Halloween. Uh, <laughs> Amish Dave says, if card companies were transparent about the redemption process, you'd have a lot less animosity towards them. I agree 100% with that comment. Um, let's see here. We're going to run through the last few and then we're going to move on to the next case. Brian says, will we ever see two companies produce the same league's product? Well, that's a business question more than a legal question. But Paul, do you have any opinions on that? You know, we uh, when we start talking about the the leaf and upper deck suit, you know, there there may be an answer uh, built into there because you know right now from a business perspective, it doesn't look like the leagues have any interest in uh, working with multiple companies. Uh, but you know, one of the issues in the leaf versus upper deck case is uh, is is a uh, exclusive license with a league. Is that legal? So we uh, you know may get a decision on that and learn more in the future. But at least from a business perspective, I don't I don't see that happening in the near future. Okay. Okay. And Charles says, has anyone ever contacted you about Facebook marketplace deals going sour? Well, not me. Uh, uh, Paul, I mean, you're a, you work for a, a, a serious law firm. You do uh, big work. I think I can say you were telling me about a few cases you've worked out outside of the hobby, certainly newsworthy. Um, have you ever been contacted about anything like this? Or do you think there's even legal recourse? I, I I have been contacted, and uh, uh, when I when I am contacted uh, about issues like this, I uh, you know refer it to you know to try and look for a local attorney or think small claims court. Uh, that's that's normally the best way to uh, proceed for small. Uh, I'm going to say small, but you know not you know thousand dollars or less actions. Uh, th those are that's the most expeditious way to uh, to go. And because when you see a Facebook marketplace deal gone bad, it's basically just it's like it's 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 a breach of contract action more than anything. Else, and there's a lot of a lot of lawyers know how to do that. And uh, small claims courts, uh, if you don't want to get a lawyer, that's a, a very good alternative, uh, at least in the United States. And, and lawyers aren't cheap. I mean, you're going to pay from like, I mean, three hundred dollars an hour at the at an absolute rock bottom, maybe up to a thousand dollars an hour. So, what's the card worth? How much could you have possibly lost in your Facebook Marketplace deal? You have to just sort of weigh out your your options there. Right. Uh, Billy, busy at night at work, can't watch live. Look forward to watching the replay. Thank you, Billy. We look forward to you watching it then. Um, and okay, so listen, we're going to move on to the next case now. So the next case we're going to discuss is the, well, this was a hot topic about a year ago, really hot topic. It's the grading and trimming scandal. Um, it involved several different uh, defendants, I believe. Paul, why don't you uh, lay out the lay out the case for us? Sure. So the uh, case uh, that so I mean, even before the case was filed, it was this was kind of a big deal. And uh, I mean, it was it made the national media it was on ESPN. Uh, the fact that there were a number of collectors that identified what they believed were cards that were graded and authenticated, authenticated and graded. Uh, yet it looked like they were modified or trimmed. 
And that's something that, you know, most people in the hobby don't want to see. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, people outside the hobby may be a little bit confused by that because if you get rid of a ratty corner, you know, the card looks better. But again, you're modifying it. I mean, the card, you know, most cards, two and a half by three and a half inches. I mean, that's it's got a standard size. And, uh, you know, if, it, if you get a trimmed card and I mean, it's fairly noticeable sometimes because if it's if it's graded, if it's put in a case and you're shaking it and it's bouncing around, uh, it's it, it's 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 the wrong size. So uh, it made the news because there's a lot of very high dollar value cards that look like they may have been trimmed and graded. And the, the issue there is a lot of the authentication companies have a policy that if a card, is, if they can determine that a card has been modified or trimmed, they won't grade it. They won't slab it. They won't grade it. So by, in essence, by them grading a card and putting it in the slab and giving it a score between one to 10, they are saying this is a non-modified card. This card is not trimmed. Now, a number of collectors were able to point out uh, a bunch of instances of high dollar value cards that looked like they were trimmed and it gave rise to you know, you know kind of conspiracy theories that hey are the grading companies in bed with uh, some of the sellers to make sure that they you know get high scores high grades on modified cards and and there's 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 a lot of concern about that uh, so Eric Savoy uh, brought a lawsuit against uh, uh, Collectors Universe, PSA, uh, PWCC, uh, and Probstein, uh, saying that uh, he believes that he has purchased at least one card that was uh, trimmed and graded. Uh, and, you know, he, he wants validation for that. And he brought the lawsuit as a uh, class action. Uh, again, uh, the lawsuit was on behalf of everybody who's ever had a card graded. Uh, uh, you know, he wanted uh, to, to be as part of that lawsuit. And you know, part of the theories for that were not were just the fact that hey, my card has been graded; uh, it shouldn't have. I want my money back. It was also this affects all graded cards because now there's a potential asterisk on every graded card. Sure, it's a PSA ten, but do we know that it's not trimmed? You know, it, 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 he believed and he alleges that it hurt the value of all graded cards across the board. So uh, interestingly, this case is kind of the reverse of what happened uh, in the uh, uh, in the uh, Panini redemption suit, because in the Panini redemption suit, that was filed in federal court and it was dismissed because it didn't meet the requirements of being in federal court. The Savoy suit was filed in state court. And uh, the first action that was actually performed here by uh, collectors universe and PSA was to remove the case from state court to federal court. So which uh, is procedurally kind of a, 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 it seems like a funny thing to do. You've been sued. Why are you moving it to federal court? Well, federal courts have different requirements than state courts. And a federal court, when you plead a fraud action, and that's what Eric Savoy's complaint was, it was a claim that I have been defrauded, that the pleading standards, what you need to put into your complaint when you file it, is a lot higher than simply who, what, where, when, and why. You have to give an explanation uh, as to each step and what actually happened here. So when the case moved to federal court, and which, what's kind of funny is, you know, by removing the federal court, uh, PSA and Collectors Universe said, hey, this case is worth over $5 million and over a thousand people allege they've been hurt. So kind of the reverse of the Panini situation. Uh, but uh, uh, there's an opportunity when you move from state court to federal court, since there is a higher standard for pleading, he could have filed a more in-depth complaint. 
and he chose not to. And PSA and Collectors Universe, they were the first ones that were served. So they were the first ones that got a, got a, you know, a, take a whack at the complaint. And they moved to dismiss it and saying, hey, he can't meet the pleading standards because all he alleges is that I believe I have purchased a card that was trimmed and graded. He doesn't even identify what the card is. He doesn't even know if he's hurt. So if he doesn't know he's hurt, why are we even here? Uh, so uh, uh, Collectors Universe and um, uh, uh, PSA filed that filed that motion. And in response, okay, again, Eric Savoy had the opportunity to bring forth his card and say, here's my card. I talked to an expert. He said it's been trimmed. It's been modified. Uh, it should not, never been graded. He didn't. And there, in his in his opposition, he says, "I don't need to do that. I believe I've been hurt, and that's good enough." I don't think that's right. Uh, he 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 needed to come forward with a card. He needed to. I mean, he needed to not just for uh, uh, Collectors Universe and PSA. He needed to do it for PWCC also, and say that, "Hey, I purchased this card from." PWCC. They said it was a card that was graded. It was graded by PSA. I talked to an expert. The expert looked at it and says, hey, this is completely trimmed. Uh, it never should have been graded. That there is a basis for a lawsuit. He didn't do that. So uh, right now, uh, that motion uh, is in front of the judge. The judge uh, is uh, normally when you when you have a motion to dismiss filed, normally the judge will have a hearing. Uh, and at that hearing, both sides, the reason the judge wants a hearing is so both sides can argue until they're blue, uh, just get everything out there and can also address every question the judge might have. In this instance, and recognizing we are in a COVID world, there's a lot less hearings that are going on right now. But the judge said, I don't need a hearing for this. I pretty much know how I'm going to rule. And uh, so that's where we are right now. We're waiting for the judge to rule. I suspect that he's going to rule procedurally again, like in the Panini case. He's going to say, hey, this case doesn't belong in federal court because you haven't identified a uh, card that was trimmed and graded. Uh, so I think disappointingly, we're not going to get to the no, the the actual legal issues about you know should this be legal? Is there a conspiracy or uh, is it you know just mistakes? Which is when it came to the motion to dismiss, uh, you know, like Panini, they uh, you know PSA and Collectors Universe filed their motion and said, hey, let's dismiss it procedurally, and that was their procedural argument. But then they also said, hey, but this is legal too. What we've done is legal, and the reason it's legal is because the plaintiff needs to show that we have a conspiracy, that we intend to defraud everybody uh, by doing this. And we're not intending, he doesn't show, say that, they're, that we're intending to fraud. In fact, if anything, it shows that we made mistakes and mistakes aren't good enough. And I used to be a defense attorney. I spent uh, five years at a defense firm representing a lot of rather large companies. And we always referred to this as the, uh, your honor, I'm not evil. We're just really dumb. And you know what? I mean, if we're dumb, we're sorry we make mistakes. It, it, it happens. And we're, we're sorry we're dumb. But in order to be fraud, we have to intend to rip people off. And we don't intend to rip people off. We're just dumb. Uh, so uh, you know, we, the judge likely won't get to that, uh, won't address that uh, situation. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's, always fun. It's, it's always fun to see. I'm not evil. I'm dumb. You know, it's funny because I think it's easier to take that I'm dumb defense, especially when you're going against 
uh, plaintiffs who, and Brian Kingsley says it very well, these people are unorganized. If you're coming across as unorganized, uh, it might be easier to say, hey, judge, we're just dumb. We didn't mean to. We just didn't know any better. So, and these guys are unorganized. So you're probably just going to dismiss this anyway without even going to trial. So uh, any any merit to that? It, they're really, uh, you know, at least from the defendant's side, yes, uh, there really is. And uh, I, I mean, we're, we're, sorry, were you saying that the plaintiff was unorganized or the defendants were unorganized? I, I got a little confused there. So Brian is saying that the plaintiffs are unorganized because the because the Panini case, uh, so the Redemptions case, as you said, they didn't state anything that was act- they couldn't even name a card in the in the trim scandal, uh, the trimming and graded uh, case. The, the plaintiff, again, didn't mention what card that he was that he felt he was uh, defrauded on. So, I mean, so Brian says, well, these guys are unorganized. And then you're saying, well, the defendant being the well, being in this case, the grading companies or the or the consigning company, uh, they can say, well, <laughs> it's easy. I think it might be easier to play dumb when when the plaintiff is not organized or not well represented. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is, because at all times, the plaintiff has to prove their case. The defendant has doesn't have to prove anything. The defendant can, I mean, really, in these, you know, for these motions, Panini and PSA and Collector's Universe, all they needed to say is, hey, the case doesn't even belong here. They didn't actually need to come forward and defend their actions at all. The burden is completely on the plaintiff. So if the plaintiffs are disorganized and, you know, can't, you know, put together a good argument, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is just sit back and let them be their own worst enemy. It's, it's, it's a common saying, uh, you know, some of the best hearings I've ever had are when uh, the judge says he's already going to rule in my favor. Now, defendant, you have an opportunity to talk. And then the talks and the judge says, okay, well, you haven't changed my mind. Mr. Lesko, do you have anything to say? No, your honor. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, you're only going to get in trouble by talking some more. Just, if, if you're going to win, just sit back and let the, you know, let the other guy hang himself. Right, right. Okay. All right. Um, we got some more comments to get to here. So before we get to the next case we're going to discuss, which is uh, BG, if you're still in the house, Leaf versus Upper Deck, we have an antitrust case going one way and a case regarding exclusives going the other way. But before we get to that, I do want to uh, bring up Mike Davis's question here. He says, and this is off topic, but he says, do you think razes are legal? Do you foresee any issues um, arriving from them or group breaks. And I will mention, you know, on, on sports cards live here, we've had, I've had a big group breaker on in the past. I've had a, a very professionally run razzing, uh, a gentleman who runs razzes in a very professional manner on. And, and, you know, I couldn't comment on this to hear what, what your takes are on these two sort of, um, activities that go on in the hobby. Yeah. So uh, I've actually uh, a while back, I had a um, I used to work at the defense firm I used to work at. I worked with a real smart uh, guy who was uh, an antitrust lawyer, but he also did sweepstakes and contest law. And we uh, co-wrote an article together. I interviewed him in the article on case breaks and uh, and, and on razes. And he explained, you know, what uh, the requirements were for sweepstakes and contests and whether, you know, uh, case breaks were illegal contests, uh, illegal contests and sweepstakes. And I, I, I could say most case breaks, in my opinion, are not legal. 
Uh, there, you know, there's there's a number. You know, it, it's it's difficult because in order to comply with sweepstakes and contest laws, there's 50 different states. You have to comply with all 50 states' laws. There has to be a no purchase necessary option. That's why most trading cards uh, companies have a no purchase necessary option on that. It's not because they're nice. It's because they're trying to not be an illegal sweepstakes or contest. But I can definitively say, and if you probably search my name on Twitter and search for Razzes, definitively Razzes are illegal. <laughs> they are illegal. And I know there's, uh, you know, more pressing issues in the world and there have been more pressing issues in the world in the last five, six, seven years. But uh, it would seem to me if you ever had a uh, someone in the uh, prosec in a prosecutor's department or in the FBI, if they ever wanted some easy wins. I mean, I think there's some easy targets out there that are that are offer that are that have some illegal sweepstakes and contests. So what if you're you're running a RAS and you're going to tell everybody's, and I think just for people watching, if you don't even know what a RAS is and you may not, a RAS is a, it's a, it's basically a raffle where the seller has a card. Let's just use an example, a thousand dollar card, and they're going to sell 10 spots at a hundred dollars each to, to get their full thousand dollars worth of value out of the card. And then they're randomly going to choose a winner and whoever comes out on top of this randomly generated list of all the entrants is going to win the card and the other nine people are they don't get anything but what if instead of not getting anything you say to them hey if you do not win the card you're going to win we're going to send you a digital image of the card or something like that is that is that a way around it just like you know no purchase necessaries and skill skill testing questions are used to uh get around some of the sweepstakes stuff it's, it's, it's really not because, uh, and again, it goes by all 50 states have different laws uh, as to what is a sweepstake or a contest. And uh, uh, but really, what it really does is the other prizes have to be something very similar in value. So you can't have a thousand dollar card and then offer people a you know bunch of pixels. Uh, they're, they're not comparable value, so. Okay. Okay. And what about uh, group breaks then where, you know, everyone's buying into the case, a, a case of whatever product, there's 30 teams. So you're going to randomly receive one of those teams and you're likely going to get cards because if the car, if the product has enough cards in, and it's not like an exquisite or a cup or something like that, and there's, you know, hundreds of cards, you're going to get something. What do you think of that situation? I think that's closer. I think if you're in a uh, product that is uh, base card heavy without very many uh, you know, inserts or autographs or uh, chase cards, I think in an instance like that, if, if you're just evenly dividing the teams, uh, I think you have a much greater chance of that being legal. But uh, I, I think, you know, when it comes to group breaks where you're, you know, there's a lot of players who potentially won't get a team. You know, they won't even get a card depending on who they are, uh, which team they select. I mean, I think uh, uh, in any instance like that, you're, you're getting closer to not being illegal. Okay. And I know every time we do this, I make a lot of group breakers very angry uh, uh, about it. Uh, but uh, all I can tell you is, you know, legal minds may differ. There's some attorneys that may say that it actually is legal. And with the manufacturers making products, you know, specifically for group breaks, they, I would think they have looked into this and they think that, that, that it's, that it's legal. Uh, so, you know, legal minds may differ, but I would not, if I had free time, I would not start a, a group break. I uh, <laughs> think my uh, law license could be in jeopardy if I would do that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I like what you said that you think the manufacturers must have looked at this because we do know that they do sort of cater products to the group breaking culture, uh, as well as the distributors. I mean, they're also working with group breakers as far as I know and have heard and have seen at the very, at the national and the expo and all that. They want to see these guys 
they're the ones opening the product a lot. You know, they're, they're opening a substantial amount of product, I should say. Obviously, collectors are buying unopened product and busting it themselves. But these group breakers are opening a, a significant portion of cards. Uh, and I don't know what that how, what size of the pie they're breaking compared to, you know, everything that's bought at retail and at the local card shops. But it, it's definitely happening to a large degree. So hopefully they're covered off and this whole thing won't blow up on them. That's, that's for sure. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. So, I mean, take note if you're watching and this is part of your business, you want, may want to make sure that you're you're okay and uh, take this as some free legal advice to get actual legal advice, perhaps. Okay, I'm going to go back to comments before we get to the Leaf versus UD case. Uh, this goes back to the last one. Paul says, it's funny, I noticed PSA graded card listed by either ProBSene or PWCC that was listed as likely trimmed. Would that be them trying to get ahead of any issues? a great question i mean like I, but like likely trimmed is an opinion still right they're saying likely trim but do they have hard evidence of that probably not i i think that you know again uh looking at the savoy case that you have to prove intent if you want to show that pwcc or probstein did something wrong you have to show that they're intending to pass off a card as authentic uh, uh that's actually trimmed here it, it, the exact opposite they're saying we got questions about this one, you know, so there, it's very hard there to say that there's, there's, there's intent. So I would say at least the way, the way that's, that uh, the Savoy case is pled, this would take them out of that, uh, that, that realm. And then, you know, and, and as I understand with uh, uh, graded cards, if there is a graded card and it ultimately is determined to be trimmed, I believe the uh, uh, grading services do offer you uh, money uh, uh, back in those instances. Uh, it takes you away from the class action uh, route. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's not something that you'd probably get a lawyer involved with. And there, there is a remedy for it. Uh, but I think that's, you know, that, 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 that's why they're doing that. Let's blow up intent, get rid of intent. We can't be a part of this lawsuit and everybody. And again, it goes to the whole more information is better. You know, the, the more information that's out there, everyone can make an informed decision. It's when people hold back and people can't make informed decisions. That's where most of the legal issues, especially in this industry, come about. Yeah, it's definitely more transparent. And I got to say, I mean, if you're a seller and you're going to put that in your listing, you know, it's going to hurt your final sale price. So uh, but as as it should especially yeah. if you're pretty certain it's trimmed and somehow it got by the grading company. So, uh, okay, great. Thanks for that, Paul. Uh, uh, wait, uh, sorry, I meant to put this one up. Rich Barone, also known as the mayor of Canada. Welcome to the show. And just for fun, I'll show it. This is Rich Barone. This is my mayor of Canada t-shirt that I'm wearing tonight. Uh, Rich, welcome to the show. Rich is a New Yorker, but we call him the mayor of Canada. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, buddy. I see people are talking. Canada. What's that? <laughs> Didn't realize New York was a suburb of Canada. It's well, <laughs> if, you're, if you're rich for own, it, it, not only is it a suburb, that's where the mayor lives. Um, okay. I see everyone's kind of talking about what, what a Raz was. So I'm glad I got to talk about that. Uh, Amit says, uh, F Facebook has been in a lot of trouble lately. How do they avoid being named sued for groups who, who do Razes? That's a great question. Is that something you can speak to, Paul? Yeah, uh, pretty much any uh, internet provide any uh, service that you do through the uh, through the internet, eBay, Facebook, uh, even Tops Online. Uh, any purchases you make through there, you you actually agree to arbitrate uh, any claims uh, against them uh, by participating in there. So you waive your right to lawsuits there, and not only do you waive your right to lawsuits, you waive your right to a class action. So uh, Facebook may, I mean. 
I don't know, you know, if Facebook did do something uh, that's perceived as uh, wrong here, uh, the proper recourse would be through an arbitration proceeding uh, on an individual by individual basis. Uh, so that's that's why they're not getting sued uh, over instances like that. You you unfortunately you waived your rights, and that's that's something I could go on for uh, go on about forever. Arbitration clauses they're ruining uh, consumer rights. They're horrible. They're awful. We uh, you know our law firm and a bunch of other law firms we try to lobby to get. Uh, control over arbitration agreements, but basically, you give up your right to sue and you give up your right to class actions just by clicking a button. So, okay, so hey, something I didn't know. There you go, everybody. Some more great information. Scott says, I see many group breakers now give points with each purchase that can be used towards future breaks and products that they sell. Maybe that's a an effort to become more uh, compliant with with laws in their jurisdiction. Could be. Yeah, Okay, uh, anonymous Facebook user, please look at the uh, ticker right now. Go to streamyard.com slash Facebook. Click the big blue button and we will get to your uh, next questions. Uh, Rich Barone, I am wearing a shirt with your face on it. Of course you like it. Jay-Z in the house. Good evening, Jay-Z. Always welcome. Uh, always good to, great to see you, my friend. Always great to see you. Lars says, a lot of evidence has been brought forth on trimmed cards on certain hobby forums, yet a guy with no evidence whatsoever goes ahead with a clash act and lawsuit. Seems very odd. I mean, those were my thoughts exactly. Blowout forums is notorious for their, I think they call it the BOTA, the blowout detective agency or something. It's a group of real passionate collectors who are helping to self-regulate the hobby. And they're out there looking for trimmed cards and they're finding trimmed graded cards that have been sold on eBay through some of the bigger consignment companies and they're finding lots of them and the evidence to me is indisputable. The fact that this the one plaintiff couldn't get his ducks in a row is very disappointing so that we could have maybe seen something through to some sort of finality on this and it seems like we're not going to. Any quick point just to sum that up, Paul? No, I, 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 I that's what I'm pretty disappointed too about the uh, Savoy case too, because it, it seems like you know there there is enough uh, examples out there that really make you question what's going on, and the fact that the complaint you know they, they don't have a plaintiff who purchased these cards or owns these cards, it, it just it's I I. I, I, I practice a lot differently. I would have had it identified. I would have had pictures. I would have shown that. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's such a good story to tell. And you know, the the first document you file with the court, you want to explain your story. You want to get the judge interested in your case so he doesn't dismiss it. And just saying, I think I've been hurt. Well, everybody thinks they've been hurt. I mean, it's just, where's the pictures? Show me, show me, grab my attention. So, uh, yeah. It, you know, it, it, it might give the opportunity if this case is dismissed, you know, that maybe the uh, plaintiff's attorney or somebody else will uh, put together a different suit, a uh, more viable, at least from a procedural standpoint suit. Uh, but then, you know, you can pass that procedure. Now you have to win the case. <laughs> that's that's, yeah. uh, that's that's your next step. So and we would like to get an answer to that now. And we're not going to we're probably not going to get an answer to, uh, you know, the actual merits of the case right now. Yeah. It's too bad. It's funny. You say that, you know, when you go in, when you go in front of the judge, you want to get the judge interested. I didn't, you know, I've never really been in litigation. So I didn't realize that, you know, it's almost a sales job, a promotion job, you know, that you need to sell the judge to even want to hear your case. It's, I don't know that that to me isn't really in line with, uh, with justice, but Hey, um, 
It is I mean, what it is. You have to do it from uh, all at, from like all standpoints because uh, I mean re- whether or not you know ultimately the judge is going to rule in your favor or not. There's enough close calls in cases uh, where there's sometimes there's a 50-50 ball in a case. I don't know which way I'm going to rule. So yeah. you know, so in, in cases like that, have the best story. Don't break any of the rules. You know, have the you know don't have misspellings or I mean there's a lot that really goes into you know every, everything that you file here. And, and so because you just never know, uh, you know, sometimes you think a judge's decision is based off of what they have for breakfast that day. Right. So make sure make sure that you're the one that's always good and golden. OK. OK, man. Appreciate that. So uh, we're going to move on to the next case here. But I do want to acknowledge Georgetown Vintage and Austin Olson. Your questions are great, but they're kind of if you can remember to ask them again later on. If I remember, we will come back to them. But we're going to try and just stick a little bit on schedule uh, so apologies for that for now. Uh, Brian does say Paul would have walked into the courtroom ready to rock and roll. I'm sure he would have. Seems like he has his ducks in a row better than some of the people we've been talking about so far. Um, okay, let's get to the next one. So the next case or cases we're going to talk about are regarding Leaf trading cards. Uh, BG might still be watching. Brian Gray, the owner of Leaf and Upper Deck Company, everybody's heard about. So as explained to me, Paul, uh, Leaf has a case against Upper Deck, basically an antitrust case, and Upper Deck has a case against Leaf, basically um, exclusive athlete infringement, something to that nature. You're the expert. I'll let you take it away. Let's understand what the case is, the cases are, and your thoughts on them. Sure. This is a multi-year case that uh, initially started off with uh, Upper Deck suing Leaf. Uh, Upper Deck sued Leaf because in some Leaf products, Leaf had what Upper Deck alleged were its exclusive exclusive athletes, uh, Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr, uh, a number of athletes that uh, Upper Deck pays a lot of money to, to ensure they are only in their products. Uh, Leaf had some uh, uh, some cards with uh, jerseys uh, from these athletes that were cut up and, uh, you know, had the names of the uh, athletes on there. And uh, it, it was you know, similar along those lines. So Upper Deck brought a lawsuit saying, hey, those are ex- our exclusive athletes. Uh, we're basically standing in the shoes of these athletes. They would sue you if they could, but we're going to sue you on their behalf. And so that's basically we don't want to be in your product and we want these exclusive athletes out of your product. Uh, the very next day, uh, Leaf then sued Upper Deck and said, uh, basically, hey, you're an illegal monopoly. You in the NHL and the NHLPA with your exclusive license, you are prohibiting us from competing in the hockey market. Uh, so we want your uh, license, we want your license with the leagues basically blown up. So you kind of have, uh, uh, you have exclusive licenses with the leagues versus exclusive licenses with the athletes that are at issue here. And this case has been going on for years, and we were actually on the verge of uh, of a trial. Uh, we're, I mean, we're, we were just knocking on the door, but then uh, COVID nineteen happened. Uh, that basically, it's it's shut down uh, in person hearings and courts. Uh, it is completely shut down trials. Uh, so the trial was bumped. Uh, right before uh, all this happened, Lee filed a motion uh, against uh, uh, Upper Deck, basically asking the judge, "Hey, judge, I, I, I want you to do something here." And in Leaf's motion, Leaf said that uh, it was a motion for sanctions, saying we think Upper Deck has done something wrong here. 
And unfortunately, the motion was filed under seal, meaning it was screened from the public. Only the parties and the judge could see this. So uh, we saw this on the docket and we're kind of, well, what's going on here? Why, why is there a motion for sanctions? And through some various filings that were back and forth, what we could piece together was that it looks like Leaf is alleging that Upper Deck uh, interfered uh, with a witness. Basically said that there was a settlement agreement out there that the uh, Upper Deck settled the case with somebody who was supposed to be a witness in this case. And uh, looks like they did it for favorable testimony or you know denying knowledge uh, in this case. So witness tampering is basically what it was. So initially the judge denied it. The judge said, you know what, uh, we're too far along, uh, we're not gonna go down this route. And Lee filed what's uh, basically called a motion for reconsideration. And uh, I, I tweeted this out uh, at the time when I saw there was a motion for reconsideration. I said, there's no way Leaf wins this. There's no way. I've In 20 years of practicing law, I've never seen a motion for reconsideration or an, an appeal to the judge above the judge uh, for this uh, ever win the day. Um, I was in court once and a judge asked me, uh, Mr. Lesko, what is this? Is this a motion to overrule myself? Why would I do that? So. <laughs> But, you know, lo and behold, uh, Leaf's strategy uh, actually worked out. The judge uh, said that, hey, in view of COVID-19, in view of everything slowing down here, this is an issue that we should explore. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and I have, you know, some potential concerns here because if Upper Deck did interfere with a witness in this case, uh, I want to know about it. So Leaf was recently allowed, I believe it's four hours of deposition. They get to talk to one of the parties that was involved with this. And uh, the judge said, okay, as soon as you're done with that, send me the transcript. I want to look at that and then I will rule on whether sanctions are allowed in this case. Now, why this is important is the upper deck versus the leaf versus upper deck case it's really complex i mean antitrust uh whether there's an illegal monopoly that's a very complex claim it has to do with does upper deck have market power is this market power unfairly preventing leaf from competing because it could prevent you could be you could have market power you can be a monopoly but as long as you're not doing anything wrong and preventing people from competing with you that's fine but if you're unfairly limiting well and see already i'm saying it i'm getting bored. If I'm a juror, I'm going to get bored with that and I can get lost. And the same thing with uh, Leaf's claim or Updex claims against Leaf about, hey, these are our exclusive athletes. We don't want them in Leaf products. I mean, it's boring. So a jury, you know, could look at both these issues and just why are we here? We don't get it. These are just two companies that don't like each other. But what they do know is, hey, wait, did Upper, did upper Deck potentially pay a witness or settle a case with a witness for favorable testimony in, in, in their favor. You know, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but it seems like if they're willing to do that, they don't think their case is strong. So and then that's, you know, I mean, Upper Deck may ultimately win this motion. It may be denied. There may be nothing there. And this, you know, this never makes it to a jury. But if uh, Leaf does win this motion, if the court says hey, there was something here that shouldn't have happened, sanctions are warranted, uh, the jury could hear about it. And if a jury hears about it, it could sway the jury. So it's it seems like a small little one-off issue, but those small little one-off issues sometimes that's what wins cases for people. Whether yeah, especially when it's as complicated of a case as this one is. Okay, well, so in your opinion, and if you're willing to opine on this, um, in terms of the antitrust claim by uh, Leaf versus UD, do you think he do you think they have a case on that merit? 
Unfortunately, most of those documents are screened from the public. Uh, in order to, to figure out what's going on in an antitrust case, it's a very market heavy analysis. You have to look at how much of the market Upper Deck has, how much money they're spending. It's a lot of stuff that we never get to get to see. I personally, uh, you know, so I don't know who, who would necessarily win this. Personally, I would like to see uh, 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 a decision out there questioning whether leagues can choose only one manufacturer uh, to do to uh, have a product, I think that would be good for the hobby. Uh, that may be more of my heart in this than my mind uh, uh, into it. So, uh, I, so I just think I just think competition is good, and I think we we need more competition in the industry. Uh, but as to whether Upper Deck's going to win, I don't know. I, I I really don't know that. I suspect on the on the other way when Upper Deck is suing Leaf over their exclusive licenses or about whether our athletes can be in their products. I think in that instance, I think Leaf has the better arguments uh, against them uh, because, you know, really, if you, you can, anybody can wear a jersey uh, that they buy. Uh, you can be on TV wearing that jersey and you can't be sued for that. You can buy the jersey. You can cut it up into little pieces. You're fine with doing that. Manufacturers are fine with cutting up a jersey and putting it into a card. If you're on that card simply saying, hey, this is a Gretzky jersey I cut up. Uh, here's a picture of the jersey that I cut up. That should be legal. I, I, I don't see why that would be illegal. Uh, so, um, I mean, we'll ultimately see what the jury does if the jury gets the case. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I suspect antitrust is too hard. To, it's always a hard case to win. So it's probably in Upper Deck's favor just because it's such a hard case to win. Uh, this could very well be a case that went on for two years. Both sides lose <laughs> and just right. their attorney's fees. And there's no, you know, there's no one in the no one in the hobby has, uh, you know, any more guidance on uh, whether exclusive licenses with athletes or exclusive licenses with the leagues are, are technically legal and binding. OK, so no, no. Uh closure on that yet but i i will mention again that you know you have you know you and i discussed it you are going to be appearing on sports cards live again in the future so if anyone sort of just joined or wasn't here at the beginning of the show paul will be a regular guest on the show paul uh yep. you know every few months type of thing not every week or every month even but every so often to give us an update on what's going on in the legal uh, landscape of the hobby so and you know back to what you were saying where you say, you know, it might be your heart versus your head. Um, I mean, I find it hard to think that the, and I know, I know there are, you know, there's antitrust cases all the time, but if a, if a league wants to do business with one company and only one company for whatever reasons, I, I would love it too. I would love more competition, but I don't see how they can step in and say, oh no, you have to do business with this entity as well. Um, that just, I don't know capitalism and, and business. I don't know if that makes sense to me, but it uh, doesn't mean I don't want to see it. Understand right. that. And, yeah. and, 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 and it comes back to the uh, the, the next steps. So I think uh, just purely having a uh, agreement between a manufacturer and a league, that's probably legal. It's the next steps about uh, if the manufacturer then has, and this is what was alleged in the lawsuit, that the manufacturer required its distributors to be exclusively only for Upper Deck, and they were not allowed, it was alleged that they were not allowed to have Leaf products also. Whether that's factually correct or not, I'm not sure. This whole case has been under seal. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you take that additional step with your market power and do something illegal, you know, that that would that would be nice to say, hey, you you can't do that. But uh, I mean, you know, it's so, it's, it's so complex. You just it, it's hard to keep a jury's attention when you get to that level. It was it's all under sealed. So does the judge know whether or not one the one of the, the companies used their market power to exert that force upon one of their 
distributors? Does the does the judge know that the, this the, occurred or didn't? The yeah, the judge will be able to see everything. The jury will be able to see everything. It's just the members of the public. So when when a document's filed under seal, the other side generally gets to see it. The whoever filed it gets to see it. The judge gets to see it. His staff gets to see it, and the jury gets yeah. to get to see so, it. It's a screen for the public. And I just asked that clarity because I think knowing that makes me think that we might get some sort of uh, some sort of decision rendered uh, based on that, possibly if the information is out there and the judge is aware. So, OK, I want to step back. Uh, just I want Austin Olson, I've read your question more fully now, and I want to let you know we will be t touching on your issue. Uh, the questions you asked, we'll be touching on those uh, when we're talking about TOPS Project 2020, because that's been an issue in that area as of late. So we will definitely get to that. I also wanted to mention to Michelangelo, Paul, I don't know if you have a website, but Paul's Twitter is on the ticker below. So Michelangelo, check that out. That's where you can follow Paul and see what he's talking about. And again, it's, he, he taught, he tweets about the hobby. He has big, long threads going on Twitter. So, I mean, you might have to go to Twitter if you're not already there to follow what, what Paul is talking about. Okay. Let's move on. The next case on the agenda is Upper Deck versus Panini, and it's the case regarding Michael Jordan in the background. So before we jump in, Paul, is now a good time for me to show the, some cards that actually have this on it, or do you uh, want to lay out sort of the, the foundation for what this is about? I, 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 I think it'd be fun to put the cards out there because I, I think it would be fun to see if anybody who's not familiar with the suit or the cards can even notice what the, what the lawsuit's even about. <laughs> okay. Okay. So first of all, I'll just mention that Upper Deck uh, or Michael Jordan is an exclusive athlete of Upper Deck and he is not allowed to be uh, pictured on any cards by any other companies. His likeness is not allowed to show up on any other card in any manner whatsoever is, is yeah. my understanding. So we're going to show you this. I'm going to, we're going to do a little uh, screen share here. <clears throat> so here you go, everybody. This card here is a Scotty Pippen uh, Panini Optic card. And if you look right in the bottom corner here, and as Paul mentioned to me yesterday, this is about a quarter inch tall Michael Jordan. He's usually I I measured Michael it. Jordan six. What's that? I measured it. It's 0.25 inches. 0.25 <laughs> inches. Michael Jordan is 6'6". Six, six. So however many inches that is times four, this is a one, uh, what's that? It's about a 190th uh, version of Michael Jordan right here. So this little picture of him in the corner, this is part of the cause of the case. Now I'm going to show you another card. This is, a, it's funny because this card here is the same picture of Scottie Pippen. It's from a, this is from a Donruss product. So it's just a different set, same picture. And Michael Jordan is now mysteriously removed from this card. So he doesn't show up here. And the next one we're going to show you is this Dennis Rodman card, 2018 Panini Contenders. And if you can notice right here, I'm circling him. This is Michael Jordan. Now, you'll notice Dennis Rodman is nice and shiny. He's got the, he's got the lights on him here. And Jordan is in the shadows. And, you know, you can tell it's him because you can clearly see number 23 here. I had trouble identifying him by this face. This is not Michael Jordan looking his finest, in my opinion. So that's what this case is about. Paul, I'll, we'll just go back, show him one more time. Quarter inch tall Michael Jordan there. Cause of cause of issue, cause of cause of claim for upper deck. No Jordan here. So something might be going on there. And then again, Michael Jordan showing up on another Panini card. So let's go back, Paul. 
take it away, man. What's this thing? What's what's happening here? What's going to happen? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I I love this lawsuit, not because I think it's a valid lawsuit, because it's it's just it just shows how crazy litigation is in the in the hobby. So uh, Upper Deck sued Panini uh, over these 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 two cards, and uh, they're alleging that uh, you know they're that Michael Jordan is their uh, exclusive licensee. They're 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 the only one that's supposed to have them uh, in cards, and that's why we have not seen Michael Jordan in uniform uh, on a card for years because Upper Deck has control over his. Uh, likeness and image and uh, does not unfortunately have a uh, license with the NBA uh, to actually show the uniforms. So, uh, you know, here they've uh, brought a lawsuit against Panini trying to uh, just basically draw, I say is draw a lot, draw a line in the sand to say, Hey, no one gets to put Michael Jordan in, in, in cards. Uh, they're alleging that Panini did this on purpose, that they knew that this would drive people to buying these products uh, that people would notice right off the bat that, you know, this is obviously Michael Jordan and uh, and it would confuse consumers as to whether, well, was Michael Jordan now associated with Panini? Uh, you know, a, lo a, a lot of issues like that. And uh, I, I, I don't think this is a very good lawsuit. I don't think this is one that's going to stick around for, for very long because the Panini has, uh, there, uh, there's a couple defenses uh, that they have. One defense, and it, it, it's, it's another one of the procedural defenses is, hey, uh, Upper Deck just says that they have the right to step in Michael Jordan's shoes and sue us. Because again, that's really what's happening here is it's not really Upper Deck suing. It's, it's basically deck as Michael Jordan suing saying, hey, I don't want to be in your cards. You did not pay me to be in your cards, so I should not be in your cards. So one of Panini's uh, defenses is, hey, they're just saying they have a license with them. They haven't shown us that there's actually a license. And what's important there is there, there's, there's two issues, and these are only issues that a lawyer cares about. Uh, exclusive means two things to a lawyer. You know, exclusive means that, you know, that I can only appear in this one product, but then it also means I have the right to sue somebody also. So Panini's position is, okay, you may have an exclusive license with Michael Jordan to say that you're the only person uh, that can have him or the only company that can have him in your product, but we need to see proof that you can actually sue on behalf of Michael Jordan. Uh, I like that argument. I think that's a good argument. We'll, we'll see if that holds the day. But probably the argument that'll win the day is it's called incidental use. That these cards, they're not Michael Jordan cards. Michael Jordan's name is nowhere on these cards. It's a Scottie Pippen card. It, the fact that Michael Jordan just happens to be in the shot, he just happens to be there. Uh, I think that's probably what's going to you know carry the day. Uh, for, for this case, but it's it, it, it's it's a fascinating lawsuit and. And so legally, I think it's a dumb lawsuit legally. Now, from a business standpoint, I can understand why Upper Deck has to do it. And that's that's one thing that it's really difficult to put on both hats. Uh, when I sit on the sideline and I criticize cases, I'm purely doing it legally. And so if I see a dumb lawsuit, I'm going to call it a dumb lawsuit. But even dumb lawsuits may be good business decisions. This is Upper Deck drawing a line in the sand telling everybody, hey, if Michael Jordan even accidentally appears in your cards, we're going to sue you over it. So be careful about it. We're crazy. <laughs> we'll, we'll sue you for anything. And so from a good from a business standpoint, this is probably a, 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 a good lawsuit. Now, I, I, I did find it funny. I, I, we, did, we talked you know, last night about this lawsuit. I didn't mention it last night. But to be in federal court, you have to say that, uh, you know, uh, you have to give a value. It has to be a high enough dollar value. And uh, Upper Deck says this is a $5 million case uh, for two cards. 
you know, you could be a judge on that, whether whether that's real or not. Uh, but it's a it's a fascinating case. It is. I used to do trademark litigation. Uh, I, I will do trademark litigation in the future uh, if if the right case uh, crosses our door. And I can I can say this is the smallest in size uh, infringement I have ever seen. 0.25 inches. It, it, it's one for the record books. Okay. So the question that pops in my mind on this is if there is a you know, if Upper Deck is successful in this, I mean, every 95% of cards out there have other players pictured on those cards that the companies maybe don't have the right, the, the, the you know, really the, the specific right to show that player is maybe I'm totally wrong here, but is there, would this open up any other potential claims for other players? Like, is this treading on that kind of thin ice type of thing? You're, you're exactly right. And it, it's something that you learn your first, you know, the first week you're in law school, it's called the slippery slope argument. Okay. If you win here, well, what's the future mean? And, and it applies both ways. Right. So if uh, if uh, upper deck wins this, okay, well, does that mean you have to blur out the crowd? Cause you're not getting a release from every person in that crowd and you're not paying everybody from a crowd. And sometimes in a card, you like to see the crowd. You'd like to see the animation or at least be able to make out what, what's going on out there. If uh, Upper Deck wins this, well, you know, that's suddenly into question. I mean, is the next step, are people from the crowd going to sue? Are refs going to sue? Uh, there, I mean, it, it really is a slippery slope. But take it from the flip side. Let's say Panini wins this lawsuit. Let's say the court says, well, this is an incidental use. Michael, This is not a Michael Jordan card. It's a Scottie Pippen card. It's a Dennis Rodman card. So it's legal. Well, you know what's going to happen after this? There's going to be Michael Jordan in every single card that you can imagine after this. There's going to be so many Michael Jordan in the background cards or basketball products. You'll see him sitting in the audience at baseball. We have Wimbledon. I mean, it'll be every card you can imagine. It'll be Michael Jordan in the background. Yeah, then that 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 would maybe just lower the value of, of his brand overall. So I don't. I'm certain he doesn't want to see that happen. So no. No. conversations, conversations to be had. Um, yeah. Okay, I want to just acknowledge, uh, Bruce, your question is, is a good one, but we're going to maybe get to it later. So thank you. And everyone who's just joining sort of a little bit, uh, we're, we're an hour, 12 minutes in, we're going to be going for a little bit more here. But I want to thank everybody for joining. If you're kind of a first time viewer of Sports Cards Live, thanks for tuning in. Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. Really appreciate it. We're going we're gonna to grow this thing and keep on having on great guests. Paul is going to be a sort of a regular appearer on the show and will continue to keep us updated live and in video. So thanks to Paul for that again. Um, okay, I just wanna make sure that we uh, don't have any more comments that I wanna bring to the screen before we move on to the next case, which is going to be uh, more, not so much a case, but just activity that Panini has been uh, undergoing lately with respect to trademark protection. Paul's gonna speak to that. I wanna welcome first uh, Dr. Brian Price to the show. Brian owns President's Choice Trading Cards, former owner of In The Game and has worked with uh, many other companies. And Brian was a, uh, actually Brian has the record for the longest episode ever on Sports Cards Live as a guest. All the episodes of this show, this is episode number 23. So the, 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 the previous 22 episodes, they're all on the YouTube channel. You can go watch them. I do admit they are long. So if you're gonna if you're gonna watch them, you know maybe plan to consume them in short chunks here and there, so that you can get all the way through them. The cool thing is that face uh, sorry YouTube will remember where you left off. 
So please do go back and check out the ones that interest you. Please subscribe to the channel, like the video. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much. Okay. So, uh, Paul, I'm going to just sort of scan what's coming in here. Um, and we're, I think we're going to move on. I want to read Amish Dave's comment. It says, in the second Pippin, Scotty looks to be more centered on the card, which would eliminate MJ off the right board of the photo. Okay. Carlos says, I think it's the problem on the second card, but I'm amused just the same. I can only hope there's an extensive, there is extensive arguing over the fraction of the card Jordan takes up. Get the calculators ready. Paul, something to jump in on there? You know, and that's actually a really good point. Uh, and uh, Upper Deck uh, raises that. Uh, and I think that's one of the, if the case sticks, it's because of this Upper Deck argument. It's the fact that there are two Panini cards, one with Michael Jordan in the corner, one where he's cropped out. Their argument is, hey, that shows intent. Panini knows, this This is an admission that Panini knows, we're not supposed to have Michael Jordan in here. So they moved him out, but he's in the other card. So the implication there is, hey, let's see if we can get away with this one. Uh, so uh, I don't know if it's enough to win the day, but that's one, of, that's one of those things that sticks in a judge's mind where he doesn't, you know, a judge, if they look at a case, they don't want a guilty party to get out a potentially guilty party to get out early. So if there's any questions as to the intent of one party, he might let the case go forward. So it's a good argument uh, by Upper Deck. But really, even before we get there, whoever found Michael Jordan in both of these cards, I mean, I, I wish we could figure out who that person is, because congratulations, especially yeah. that 0.25 inch Michael Jordan, whoever found that first. I mean, that's you've got eagle eyes, sir. <laughs> For sure. And we're going to come to this later on in the show, but I want to point out that uh, what's really cool about about Paul is that Paul is a Paul's a true card collector, and one of the things Paul collects are cards that have been subject of cases. So you have these cards behind you somewhere on your wall, which I, I think is yeah, they're right there. yeah, yeah, they're right. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's to me that's super cool that you are so passionate about both your you know your 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 profession and the hobby, and that they do overlap is awesome. I want to bring up a German ten pins comment here: MJ equals Mike Micro Jordan. Uh, I love that. On that, sir. You got to get a trademark on that. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that's awesome. Um, uh, Richard says, if a company buys license to use a photo, say the Pippin photo off of Getty, do they have the right to use all of its elements, even if Jordan is in the background? Do you uh, do you know the answer to that one? Uh, you, you really don't. That's that's one of those. You may be able to get the rights to the that actual image. But if that image owner was required to get rights first, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not necessarily getting those rights too. So it's just because you get a license to use one thing doesn't mean it subsumes all other licenses. So it's uh, so that basically answers his follow-up question, which was: Can some can a company like Leaf buy a license to use a photo and use its elements, e.g., NHL logos and team logos, despite not having an NHL license? Now, when it, when, it, when it comes to the, uh, the those next steps, you would also have to secure a license with uh, the NHL. Okay. So there you go. Nice, easy answer on that one. Brian says, loving the interview, guys. Hey, loving doing it. Loving having you watch. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, as always. Okay, if there's nothing else sort of coming in here. Um, oh, you know what? There is one. And this was one that was sent to me earlier. And I did tell him if he asked it live, we would get to it. So this is going to be the last comment we address before we move on to the next item on the agenda. So Sean Robb wants to know, uh, Paul, can you comment on Panini's Prism baseball sets? Can Tops claim Prism infringes 
on their MLB exclusives. Yeah, this is uh, it's actually an issue that was uh, uh, touched on right when I first started uh, writing articles uh, for uh, Cardboard Connection. Uh, a while back, you may remember uh, Upper Deck, uh, right when uh, Upper Deck no longer had a uh, license with the MLB, they still came out with a product, uh, a baseball product. I, I, the year is slipping me. I don't know if it's 2009 or 2010. Uh, but uh, in the product, it was one of those uh, products where every pitcher is in motion, covering up the team logo. And, you know, they, they uh, I thought that, you know, at least from the photography wise, they did a very good job of making sure everything was covered up. There was very little airbrushing, though. So there were team logos and team logos were covered up. And the MLB in that lawsuit alleged that uh, that there was illegal uh, logo usage, but also alleged illegal uniform usage. So that says, you know, to me that there is precedent out there for a for at least a man, uh, for a league suing a manufacturer over what they think is stepping over the line. So uh, so when it comes to Panini having a baseball product, uh, you know, that's why you see products like, uh, you know, non-licensed products are heavy on the airbrush uh, or have uh, players not in uniform. Uh, is to avoid that. And there is a line somewhere. We do not know what that line is. Was the uh, upper deck, uh, the MLB lawsuit against upper deck, was that where the line is? And I believe at that time I wrote, I thought MLB's case was a loser. I thought MLB was going to lose that. And I thought upper deck was going to win that one. I wanted upper deck to fight that one so we could figure out where that line is. So but as you'll see, as you know, time goes on, you know, uh, manufacturers get closer and closer and closer to wherever that line is. And, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I've seen products recently uh, with uh, from Panini with baseball that I thought, you know, are creeping ever closer. I saw some uh, Mike Trout uh, uh, pictures of uh, Mike Trout uniform, which, again, you don't see any of the logos. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's clearly, uh, you know, an in-uniform in picture that would give me concern. And I, I always put myself in the position. If I was general counsel for this company, if they put that card in front of me, would I clear it or not? And, you know, we're, we're getting close to that uh, uh, point where I would really have to think long and hard about clearing some of these cards because it's it's there, there, there's two things that you want to look out for as being a lawyer. One is, is it actually illegal? And if you're sued, will you lose? But then there's also, will I just get sued? And ultimately, I may win, but I'm going to have to spend a lot of money defending myself. And I think uh, the way that non-licensed products are going, uh, we're getting ever closer to another lawsuit where uh, both companies will have to spend a lot of money. Uh, maybe we'll get an answer on where that line is, but 95% uh, of lawsuits settle uh, and they settle confidentially. Uh, so we, we probably will never know where that, where that line actually is. Okay. All right. Mike Davis did mention the product you're referring to is 2010 Upper Deck Series 1 Baseball, which I had on the screen earlier. Okay, great. Um, thanks for the question, Sean. Okay, Paul, let's turn over now to uh, your sort of summary on Panini's trademark protection activities. Um, You've mentioned something like 50 filings as of recent. You just want to, including, including the, and I think this one isn't necessarily so new, but their protection of the rated rookie mark. Can you yeah. uh, kind of give us an idea of what's going on with all that? And let's let's start with the rated rookie protection because that's you know I, I, I you may get the idea that I'm rather critical of manufacturers, but then I'm gonna also you know keep praise on manufacturers when they do something that I like. Uh, you know, a lot of people are concerned about uh, custom cards uh, that are available on eBay, especially when there's a new hot athlete that's out there, uh, and there's a lot of custom cards that are purely predatory, trying to get uh, uninformed consumers to purchase them. 
And so uh, over the last uh, year, over well, last year and a half, uh, Panini has done a very good job of uh, enforcing its rated rookie trademark uh, against uh, unlicensed uh, uh, sellers on on eBay. And uh, they, most of these cards focused on Zion Williamson, where there were actually a number of rated rookie cards that were custom cards. And uh, Panini went and played basically whack-a-mole. They filed, uh, there were four lawsuits on file against manufacturers. They were able to uh, shut down these cards and they were able to settle uh, each one of these lawsuits with the um, the alleged infringers uh, promising, hey, we're not going to make any more uh, cards with uh, rated rookie on them. And we like to see that because it's, it's a, a very big concern as a consumer that we see custom cards all the time on eBay. What are the manufacturers doing about this? Why are these cards out there? And that's only, uh, you know, we miss a lot of that because there are uh, what's called DMCA takedown notices, or there's ways of uh, manufacturers contacting eBay and saying, hey, there's this listing, that listing infringes my rights, take it down. And eBay will take those down if they believe it's infringing their rights. So there's a lot that we don't see. We only see the ones that maybe the manufacturers miss. Uh, and, and that are out there and, and, and cause a big deal. And everyone's like, how can the manufacturers let this? Well, it's, you know, sometimes it's tough. It's, you know, they, they're not looking at every single listing that's out there. Uh, but so when I, when I see Panini taking those next, next steps of actually filing lawsuits on that, I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing to see that they're actually policing their own marks. Now, that's not saying tops and Leaf and Panini, uh, not Panini, but um, uh, Upper Deck aren't policing their cards also. They might be doing it on eBay and maybe there's not uh, such big instances out there. But I would like to see them also filing lawsuits against infringers out there to, to at least show the consumer, hey, we care about you and we're trying to protect you. Because that's really what trademarks are there for. It's to protect the consumer, to make sure that consumers are only buying products from you know, Panini, right? When you think of rated rookie, you think Panini, you think you're buying a Panini product. So uh, it's it, it's good that they're actually protecting the consumers. So that, so that is, a, we'll, we'll move to the next one after that. There might be some questions uh, on, on the rated rookie lawsuits. So the rated, the rated rookie, I, I, I certainly understand that. The fact that Panini has filed like up to 50, trademark applications at recently is again in your opinion is that simply to protect their brand overall and protect the consumer so the consumer knows what they're getting like why are they going out there and 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 trade trying to trademark all of these various words and names that they use is that simple business uh protection of your equ the equity in your brand or is there anything else to it yeah. So, so what, so uh, what's recently happened, and this has been unique in the industry in the last three to four weeks, Panini has filed about 50 different trademark registrations and really, you know, per year, most companies would file, you know, no more than 20 in a year. So the fact that uh, Panini has filed this many altogether uh, is indicative of either a philosophical change or as I like to view it, uh, excess money in the legal department and they need to spend it somehow. Uh, a lot of these, you know, some of these filings were on distinctive uh, Panini products, Elite Extra Edition. You know, that's a, that's a trade name that uh, everyone, you know, thinks of 
exclusively when you think of uh, Panini. But some of these filings were uh, rather questionable. You know, there is a filing for signature series and, you know, other manufacturers have used signature series out there. And, you know, and it, it, it harkens back to about, I can't believe I said harkens, but uh, <laughs> about, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, Panini tried to do something like this. They filed on the, uh, the word limited. Recognizing Panini does have a limited product, uh, but they filed for a trademark on the word limited and the trademark office actually uh, initially gave it to them. And what that would have prevented is the, the trademark application was so broad that it covered uh, basically the word limited on any card uh, was would be solely within the possession of Panini. And uh, at that time, Leaf, you know, Brian Gray, if you're still here, you know, you'll remember you're one of the first people to step up and challenge that. Uh, Tops uh, challenged that also. And they were able to get the uh, decision overturned. Uh, so but with a lot of these filings that we're seeing now uh, from Panini, they're getting to that point. I mean, one of their filings is for the word one. Uh, and, you know, you, you really want the word one. Uh, and so a lot of these trademark filings, they seem to uh, ignore what uh, other manufacturers have used their product names for. And um, what it seems to say to me is that uh, I think Panini is trying to, uh, it, it's, it might not know it, but it's engaging in a turf war. There is now going to be a war over who owns which words. And Panini will probably lose a bunch of these. They probably won't get these, but if they accidentally get one like limited, uh, that's going to really, you know, it, that's going to make it really tough for other manufacturers. So I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. I like how you use the word accidentally. I mean, that just, that just makes me lose faith in, in in some of the uh you know the procedures out there to 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 get these trademarks now i, I want to also just point out brian price says didn't they try to trademark one of one is that kind of what when you use the word one a few seconds ago is that what you're referring to or is this a different attempt they made so that's tops tops actually tried to file a trademark application on one of one uh, and uh, I think I probably on Twitter said that that's the stupidest trademark application I've ever seen, uh, because in order to get a trademark on uh, something, it has to be it has to be a indicator of a product. When you see one of one, you have to think tops or you have to, you know, so even with limited Panini has a product. If you think limited is a product name, you're probably thinking Panini. So, uh, but when you think of one of one, you don't think tops. You think of, oh, this is a card that's that's distinctly one of one. But what's funny about that is, uh, you know, is you also have Panini now filing for the word one, uh, and there and Panini also file uh, also file a trademark application for one and one. Which one in one is, you know, it's, it's basketball terminology right there. You know, make one, get one. That's, that, that's what it is. So you've got three trademark applications pending uh, right now for one of one, the number one, and one and one. Oh, and uh, I, I, it, it's just nuts. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what will happen there. I, Tops is not going to get one of one. Panini's not going to get the number of one. They might get one and one, but uh, we'll, 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 we'll really see on that one. It's almost like the next application is going to be going to be for the term sports card or baseball card or card. Yeah. I mean, come on, you know? No, I mean, Panini, one of Panini's filings is for encased. Uh, that's really what they filed on. And, you know, when I think of the word encased, I think of, hey, there's a product that's either been graded or somebody put in a, you know, in an ultra pro case. Uh, and if Panini's the only one that could put the word encased on a card. You know, it, it, you know, they're so they're you're 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 you're, you're kind of getting there. And, you know, in 
normally trademark examiners do a very good job uh, for the one for Topps's one of one application. The examiner came back with one of the greatest, uh, you know, here's the 17 reasons why you can't get it. And one of them was like, there's 70,000 search results on eBay that use this, you know, I mean, it's so he, so they, they, they do their jobs, but you know, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, I think with uh, the initial granting of the limited uh, trademark uh, uh, as a registration, I think that shows mistakes can be made. And I think in this instance, uh, I think for some of these trademark filings, Panini's hoping for a mistake. And I think it's it's going to start a you know a, a turf war. I think you're going to see more filings from Upper Deck, from Tops, from Leaf to try to get you know not only the names of every one of their products, which you should you should do, but then to try to get some of these terms. Uh, a while back, there was a war over who could get the most medals, who could get titanium and sterling and platinum and gold. Uh, you know, so I mean, we might be seeing another you know turf war like that pretty soon. I hope they have big war chests because I mean, I just, what goes through my mind when you talk about the potential for so many more, so much more legal action, I just see prices going up to help pay for it on the products themselves. So I hope these, I hope these companies are kind of uh, trying to balance that off nicely and keeping the the customer in mind. And maybe we can see some cooperation at some point, but uh, maybe perhaps that's wishful thinking. Um, Terry, Robert, we are definitely going to be talking about that SPX uh, Ovechkin one of one card very shortly. But before we get to that, I do want to, I want you to, uh, chime in here paul on amit's question one that is very important in the hobby uh your take on patch repatchers so you have a card it comes out of a pack and it's got a dull patch or jersey piece on it a customer an owner takes that card and they find a way to swap out the piece of memorabilia for a more interesting piece more colors more color breaks that sort of thing what is what are your thoughts on that? In, in and really, like simply, is it fraud to do that and then resell the product on a public uh, auction site? If the uh, if the seller uh, is trying to pass it off as an original card, uh, as a non modif as as not not being modified when it's in fact modified, yes, the seller you know the seller there has a fraud claim, but the manufacturer also has a claim too because that's that's basically it's a passing off of a uh, product uh, that, that that they didn't make. So that's why you see, you know, some manufacturers have, you know, uh, actually allow, you know, they actually have the pictures of everything, uh, of, of all the memorabilia cards with the numbers that they have. So you can, you know, stop stuff like that. So yes, it's, it, it's a concern. Now, if you, uh, if you're, you know, a seller and you did that, and you say that you did that and you disclaim that that's what you did to the card, that makes it a little bit more legal because once you buy something, you can do whatever you want to it. I mean, I could get a, you know, I can get an upper deck card and I can autograph it and sell it as a, uh, you know, Paul Lesko autographed, you know, card. I, I can do whatever I want to, you know, basically to that card. Uh, and so, you know, so, but I figure most of the people who are doing repatches, things like that, they're, 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 they're trying to up the value of the card. They're trying to commit fraud. Uh, and, it, and that's what it is. It, it, it's fraud. It's fraud. One of the kind of the parallels I've drawn on this, and I've been, I've been one of the more active anti patch faking people going back to 2005 already. Um, I hate it. I, it, it actually has caused me to not collect certain cards because I just don't want to risk having fake patches in my collection. And I think there should be an onus of responsibility on the manufacturers to archive what they've done. I took it upon myself to do it way back. Um, just, I got, it was too much work. So I, I'd like to see that happen. But one of the parallels I draw is the, the automobile market. You can buy a car and you can 
put aftermarket parts on it and you can then sell it. To me, it's, I mean, I know it's not the same thing, but it, I'm drawing a parallel there. Maybe you can tell me why I'm out to lunch on this, but what's the difference between doing that and just increasing the aesthetic value of a card, uh, just as you would put a put a spoiler on the back of a car to make it look cooler or, or drive faster? Yeah, and I think in those instances, you're, I mean, you're allowed to put after, you know, I, I used to have, uh, you know, when I got my first job, the first thing I went uh, is I went out there and uh, bought a, uh, a Jeep Wrangler with aftermarket wheels on it, you know, I because, uh, you know, I thought it looked cool, but I knew what I was buying. I knew I was buying a Jeep with aftermarket tires on it. Uh, if you, uh, you know, engage in it, you know, in changing a product and then selling what you change and it's disclosed that way, again, it comes down that, you know, the, the more information, the better Then you know, it, it less of a chance that it's going to be, you know, the a manufacturer, I mean, manufacturers still might care, but there's less of a, a action that you would have by a consumer, uh, in a case like that. But, uh, I mean, you know, nobody's going to look at a, a Jeep with Casey daylighter headlights and, you know, all, you know, eight foot tires on there and think that the manufacturer did that. Uh, it's just, you know, information disclosure. The more you disclose, probably the, you know, the better it would be for you. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Okay. All right. So we're going to move on now to a, a, a specific um, custom card that it was, is currently still today listed on eBay. And this card was brought to my attention in a thread on Hobby Insider. And, um, the, the original poster of the thread said like, are you serious? It's like the, the title of the thread was seriously with like five question marks. And that was the whole thread. So I went in and I clicked on the card and I thought, whoa, that's a beautiful card. I mean, I can, I can right away tell it's not real. Um, I know that, but I'm also sort of experienced in, in that particular set or not experienced. I'm just familiar with it. I know about it. I know what it's supposed to look like. And I thought, ah, that doesn't bother me. That's that's a nice card. I, I can tell it's not real. The first word in the listing was custom. So I thought, well, he's being very forthright and not trying to pass it off as an original upper deck card. And I made some, I basically made some comments like, oh, that doesn't bother me. I, I see nothing wrong with it. And I, I see no reason why upper deck would care. Well, pursuant to our discussion last night, and I mentioned on Hobby Insider today, I'm going to have to eat some crow on that because I think that I was just wrong. And I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong 100% of the time. So let's let's have a look at the card first of all. So here, for everybody who is not familiar with this, this is the card. So this is a card that looks like a 2005-2006 Upper Deck SPX Alexander Ovechkin rookie card. And on this card, in the, the original card was made out of, there were 499 copies printed and it was a jersey card. There were no patches. So there were also no one of one version. So this artist, for lack of a better term, put one of one on it here. He put in a very nice, colorful with lots of like four color patch with lots of breaks um, in, into the patch window. And he's got sort of a silver metallic look to it. It, it the, the design is the same, but the color, the shine, the it, it's just not, I mean, if you know the set, you know this is not a, an authentic card. So... <clears throat> The, the 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 topic of or is it counterfeit came up as well and you know I don't think it's counterfeit you kind of you you let me know last night that no it's not a counterfeit but there are still issues with it and and this is going to pardon me this is going to speak Richard to your two-part question I think so you might want to pay attention here 
But Paul, can you tell us what the legal ramifications are of somebody selling a card like this on eBay that has a picture of a player, has a picture of the Washington Capitals logo, has rookie fabric here, which is something that Upper Deck used, and the this window, the patch window cutout is exactly what they had, or I mean, if not exactly very close to what the original card had. What are the what are the legal issues that this artist slash eBay seller might be up against. Sure. And, you know, let me throw in the, uh, you know, the annoying uh, lawyer disclaimer at the beginning that, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't know uh, what the rights are that this uh, uh, eBay seller or this uh, seller may actually have or not. So we'll, we'll, we'll do this as a uh, issue spotting exercise. And I think if you're taking an intellectual property uh, class, if you put this uh, picture, this could be a question. It's, this could be, you know, one third of your final for an intellectual property class. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the issue, Issues that uh, you know jump out at me uh, for a card are, I mean, it it, it it could make a lot of people angry. I mean, as I understand, uh, you know, we'll start off with uh, you know uh, the Ovechkin, uh, the fact that you know in order to have uh, uh, Ovechkin on a card, you you in all likelihood would have to have a, a contract with him to have his name, likeness, or his signature. Uh, on there. And if I understand it correctly, that's a faux uh, signature on there. That's not an actual uh, autograph. So right there, you know, uh, uh, Ovechkin potentially has, could have some concerns uh, with this card if he hasn't given any rights to the eBay seller. But then you also have the uniform, uh, the NHL, uh, you know, potentially uh, right there uh, has some concerns over use of their, uh, you know, trademark uh, logos that are in there, not just NHL, but, you know, team logos as well. Upper Deck uh, has t- at least two types of concerns here because if it looks, uh, and I'm not familiar with the SPX product, but if that card looks very similar to the SPX product, it's potentially copyright infringement or, or trademark infringement. And certainly utilizing rookie fabrics, which is, you know, something that Upper Deck has used before, uh, that's a, you know, potential trademark problem. So the way that I would go about here and, you know, talking about how Panini was trying to shut down rated rookie uh, earlier is, you know, I think the manufacturers, they are interested in the leagues too in shutting down cards that might not be on the up and up. So if you see a card like this, if it's a card that uh, is a concern, raise that issue with, you know, everybody that you think has a concern, you know, you know, tweet it out to uh, Alexander Ovechkin, tweet it out to the NHL, tweet it out to Upper Deck and say, hey, are you guys licensing this? And the reason I say that is because uh, when it comes to trademarks, to get a trademark, uh, it's basically an agreement with the government saying that, hey, we will give you the uh, a registration for this. Uh, but you have to use it to protect consumers. We will say that only you can use this on your products. And be, and that's because consumers recognize that when rated rookie is on a card, that that's panini. So, but in order to do that, you have to police it. If you let a bunch of people go out there and use this and infringe your trademarks and you don't police your marks, we could eventually take this away. You could lose this in a court of law or your trademark could be weakened. So uh, if there are potential, uh, if you want manufacturers to step up and you know police themselves, uh, draw it to their attention uh, and, 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 and let, them do, let them take the next steps. If they don't, well, they're hurting their own trademarks. So it's, it's in their best interest to also try and step in here. Yeah, that makes good sense and something I just didn't think about uh, when I was contemplating this uh, yesterday or the day before. So thank you for setting me straight and for really clarifying that for everybody. Now, a related question, take that same card, but instead 
instead have it in a situation where the the creator of the card it's not autographed the creator of the card sends it to the player and asks the player to sign it and send it back to them anything change there that that changes a lot uh still i mean if the card still looks the same way i still think uh if it looks like the same design of a card that upper deck used before there's still trademark or copyright issues there but if uh, uh, but if uh, the athlete actually signs something uh, you can do whatever you, if, a, if, an ath, if an athlete signs anything for you, you can do whatever you want with it. You can sell it. You can wear it. You can cut it up into little pieces. You can you can do whatever you want with it. So that would eliminate some of the concerns. But I mean, you still have the NHL's concern. You still have the team's concern. You still have upper deck's concerns. Uh, are, are all those entities only going to be concerned if the if the owner of the card is trying to sell it on the sec, on the on a market or like what if you're just doing it for your own personal collection and then you're showing it on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram as, hey, check out the card I just got back from player X. It might look a lot like an original design that Upper Deck or Panini or Tops put out or Leaf or in the game or whomever, but it is, but but I'm not selling it to anyone. It's for my personal collection. Is any entity going to come after you for doing something like that or should they? It, well, technically, you know, it, it falls along similar to uh, cosplay where uh, technically everyone who's designing their own, uh, you know, Superman uh, outfit or Captain America uniform and wearing them out in public, uh, technically that is, you know, you're, you're infringing some rights there, but you're not selling it. So it really doesn't, you know, manufacturers don't actually care about that. And that's, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the interest here where you make fan, basically fan art, and it's only for your exclusive purposes, uh, you know, that that's less of a concern. Uh, I, I, you probably won't, wouldn't see anything there. It's when you take that next step. It's when you try to monetize it for yourself and you're not sharing the wealth with the other, uh, you know, licensees, the people that have done the work, because the reason that card has a value is because of the logo, because of the design that somebody else made, because of the player on there. You didn't really add much value to it. That value is already there. So if they haven't given you permission to do it and you haven't given their money for it, I mean, that's where the problems, that's where the problems. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So the next sort of topic that we're going to talk about um, is basically yourself. You, I mean, you, you're a collector. Have you ever sued anybody? In uh, have you ever sued hob, a hob, hobby related? It, it it actually is a uh, 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 pretty funny there. Uh, I I did actually. Um, after writing for uh, Cardboard Connection for uh, for quite a while, uh, I, I did get involved in a, a, a lawsuit where there was a uh, Tops card uh, that was for sale. Uh, uh, it was a Tops Now product, and um, I I got the cards, you know, right over here. It was a uh, sorry to move off camera like that, but uh, it was a uh, Tops Now card that was a uh, uh, on on the website. It popped up as. Uh, John Harrison, and it was a John Harrison uh, celebration. Uh, problem is there there isn't a player named John Harrison. His, his name is Josh Harrison. And uh, at the time, uh, I, I also collected error cards. And this was a what I thought was the first error card I had ever seen on a uh, an on demand product. And so I wanted that. Uh, so I placed an order. Uh, I tweeted out uh, at the time, "Hey, uh, tops, uh, you know, I saw this card. Uh, saw it's an error." I want the error card. I, I don't want you to fix it. I want the error card. And um, uh, lo and behold, card comes out. They fixed it. Uh, it becomes a Josh Harrison card. Uh, and so uh, I brought 
a lawsuit uh, against Tops on this because uh, I, you know, I, I wanted that card. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it, it's funny when you go from, uh, you know, being a commentary on uh, lawsuits to actually participating in lawsuits, how you 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 make a, a, some people uh, in the hobby upset because, oh, this is a frivolous lawsuit and you shouldn't be doing that. And I mean, the reason I did that is I don't like, um, you know, I don't I don't like companies that breach their con what I see is a breach of contract. I don't like bullies. I don't like people telling you, hey, you bought this product, but I'm going to give you something else. And so, uh, you know, that's that that was my motivation uh, for uh, uh, bringing that lawsuit. And, you know, probably, you know, in the future, if I, you know, if I see manufacturers doing stuff like this, and in fact, there's a manufacturer that's doing something like this, and I'm probably going to do something in the future on it if we don't work stuff out. But, you know, you, you just never, you, you never know. But I, I, it's, 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 I just, when I see something wrong, uh, I'm one of those people that, you know, rather than just complaining about it, I, have a unique knowledge set. I can, I know how to use the legal system, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to hesitate to, to, to do that. To put my foot where you know, I mean, to actually do what I what, what I want to do. I'm not just going to issue commentary uh, on everyone else's dumb legal strategy. I'm going to, you know, let me engage in you know what I think is correct and the, the actual way that you should do this. Sure. And, you know, I think on behalf of the hobby, it's it's nice to have you kind of out there keeping the companies on their toes. So or, you know, just uh, that, that, I think that provides us with some comfort. <laughs> if, if anything, I'm something that they read on Monday in their inbox and like, oh, that's that Paul Lesko. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? It'll be interesting. Uh, you mentioned that you might have something else sort of uh, coming up soon. So on next time you show up on the show here. I'd love to have you talk about that and also bring us to more, you know, take us through some of these cases that are still not, uh, not finalized. I think we'd like to see what's, uh, what's up with that. So I want to come back to Austin's question here. Um, and I think the answer is obvious, but I'll put it up. So um, what do you think about the legal ramifications of people selling reprints of a card, like a Connor McDavid young gun that clearly has the upper deck logo on it? Like there's been, there was a rash of these fridge magnets on eBay where, Someone just took a picture of a card, put it on a fridge magnet and sold it. And it didn't change from the original upper deck card in this case. Clearly offside or that's, what? Yeah, that's copyright infringement. Uh, there's you uh, as the copyright owner, you're the only one that can authorize uh, what's called derivative works, uh, uses of the uh, artwork in uh, other ways. And uh, if I, I know we're going to talk about Project 2020, but that's what really got me collecting uh, Project 2020 because I got one of the uh, initially the uh, the King Saladin uh, Griffey. Uh, uh, it was because the reason I got it was because somebody pointed out, well, there's a T-shirt that someone on eBay is selling with that shirt there. And since I collect stuff where not only that involved in lawsuits that have legal issues, I bought the Saladin card from Tops, and then I also bought that shirt. Uh, because I'd like, I think there's something wrong here. And lo and behold, that shirt disappeared off of eBay pretty quickly uh, after it was brought to attention. So I suspect Tops policed itself there uh, and 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 got rid of that. And I'd have to, you know, thank them for that because, you know, I, I now have a card that's, you know, kind of, you know, it's a neat card. It's got a little bit of a story. I got the shirt. The shirt's horrible. I mean, the, the design's awful, uh, but uh, it's, it's it's a neat and, and, and expensive card. So, so when it comes to uh, somebody taking a card and putting it on fridge magnets or putting it on something else, you need to have the manufacturer's permission to do that. Uh, otherwise, it's 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 likely uh, copyright infringement. And so, as a customer or a, a a buyer of one of these items, like the fridge magnet, for example, or that Ovechkin card that we showed earlier, 
if I buy one of these things, am I like, you know, you always, we always hear, don't buy knockoff purses and handbags because you're supporting terrorism. Uh, so fair enough. If you're buying one of these fridge magnets, I don't think you're supporting terrorism, but are you sort of breaking any laws that not just ethical laws, like ethical sort of social norms or mores, but are you actually like breaking any laws by knowingly purchasing a knockoff or a, 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 a copy, a, a reprint? So that'll, uh, that, that, that gets a little more into criminal law <laughs> more than, more than anything else. And I'm, um, and every state has their own laws. And so I, I, I am, I, I, I do not have sufficient expertise in that area to opine. Uh, but, uh, I, I can say, uh, especially for the uh, rated rookie, uh, lawsuits, I do own all those cards that were involved in those lawsuits, all those, I mean, I, I got uh, uh, five of those uh, counterfeit cards uh, on my uh, on my wall. So let's say I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you just incriminate yourself. No, you know what? I, I actually I collect fake Gretzky rookies because I want to have as many different versions as I can, so that I can really figure out what to look for. And I, I I'm pretty good at spotting them now. And I take them to card shows with me specifically to show people, hey, here's four fakes. Have a look at them because a lot of people do want to buy an ungraded card. And I say, hey, before you go buy an ungraded card, let me show you what I have here to give you an idea of what to look for. So, you know, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong owning these things. I certainly think I'm actually doing something good by owning them. So, yeah, no, there I, are, there, there, there's worse things. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and it's funny. I mean, there I have a, an entire wall of, of counterfeit cards uh, yeah. up here they've been involved in, in, in lawsuits and it's, it's a teaching exercise to, to teach people, but I also think it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. Okay. Uh, Brian says, I had no idea about fake patches and Brian, I just want to say, well, one of the benefits of watching sports cards live, you get to learn new things going on. We bring, you know, I bring on a very wide range of guests. So again, anyone who's kind of just joined or new to the show, please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. This is episode 23. The other 22 episodes are on there. So do check them out. Please subscribe, like the video and all that. It helps uh, It helps the show. It makes me happy. So thank you very much uh, for anyone who has subscribed or anyone who is going to be subscribing soon. Um, okay, I'm just seeing what's coming in here. All right, so last topic for the day. We are at an hour 52. Paul, I told you we often go two hours. Sometimes we go a bit longer than that. So... Um, <clears throat> And, and I, before we move on to the last topic, I want to I want to say hi to Brett. Brett, welcome to the show. Uh, Brett says, I think the more people that purchase customs on eBay invite more customs to be posted. And also, yeah, it's enabling. I, I think that's the biggest reason not to do it. And I think as a hobby, as collectors in the hobby, we want there to be long-term value in our cards. And that's why we don't like fake patches. And that's why we don't like trimming and altering and even preserving to an extent. We like original cards, and if you're buying those, you are sort of supporting that fraudulent market, and we need to kind of look out for each other, especially as collectors, because there is no regulatory body. We self-regulate, so I encourage us all to continue to self-regulate and not enable and not buy these items and not go onto message boards and say that you have no problems with them. I do have a problem with them, and I do have a problem with that, with that Ovechkin one of one because... I have a lot of cards made by the licensed uh, the licensed manufacturers and anything that that negatively impacts the equity they have in their brand or the public perception of the value of those brands ne negatively impacts the values of my collection and everybody else's. So let's not enable. And I'm quite certain 
nobody on here is really buying a lot of these things anyway, if any. So, okay. Last topic of the day is Tops Project 2020. And the reason we're talking about it is twofold. First of well, threefold. The first one is that it is super, super hot right now. I mean, it, it, it's bubbled, it's burst. They're like card number 135 out of 400. This thing isn't going to end till about the end of the year in December at some point. They put out two cards a day. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Tops chose 20 of their most iconic cards. They hired 20 artists to do their own rendition of these cards. And so you've got a 400 card set. People are collecting either athletes. So every, every uh, say, um, pick a player here, Derek Jeter card that's coming out or every card put out by a certain artist. The second reason is that Paul collects these. He loves these cards. It's, re, it's sort of really invigorated you uh, into ba back into the hobby. And the third reason, which is kind of where the legal aspect comes in, is that these cards came out, they're $20 each on Topps' website. And back at about the beginning of May, maybe the first, second week of May, these cards spiked in value. A card that was $20 on Topps' website you know, a month later was selling for up to $3,000 on eBay, the Ermsey Trout, for example. That card is now down to being about six, $700 is my understanding. So the problem is, is that people were selling them on eBay for, you know, for, for, for say a $50 buy it now. And all of a sudden the card is worth 3,000. Someone hits the buy it now for 50. And now you've got sellers who are canceling orders then they crashed in value. Buyers are now returning cards because instead of, you know, they paid 3000 for a card and now it's worth $600 or seven, whatever it is. And they're not happy with that. So they're returning the cards. So the question that really comes is, is it, you know, what are the legal implications, especially transacting on eBay for all of these returns and canceled orders? And Paul, if you want to, you know, if you want to speak, you know, respond to all this. But if you do want to express your enjoyment of these cards just as a collector, please feel free to do that as well. And and, and that's where I think I'll start because uh, I I mean everybody uh, in the hobby. I mean it, it comes and goes in waves. I mean I I uh, initially collected in the '80s, uh, right when Dwight Gooden started. I mean I, I it was a major you know, point of my collection was to, was to collect as many Dwight Gooden rookies as possible. And then I, I got out of collecting. I got back into collecting about 2006, right about the same time I had kids. And, uh, you know, what reinvigorated me back to the hobby then was I didn't realize that cards had autographs on them now. I didn't realize cards had uh, patches uh, uh, on them. So that, you know, hooked me back in uh, and into the hobby. And, you know, later I developed, you know, collecting cards that were actually involved in lawsuits because it, it just, you know, could tie my, you know, love of, you know, practicing law and the hobby together. But, you know, collecting comes and goes, you know, at some point you get sick of everybody's product, you're done buying stuff. And last year, I think I'd be lucky if I spent uh, $100 on cards. And most of the cards I bought were counterfeit Yu-Gi-Oh cards because it was involved in a lawsuit about 10 years ago. But uh, the uh, Project 2020 cards, uh, you know, has really brought me back into the hobby. And I spent considerably more than $100 uh, uh, this year on them because I, I just like the crossover between uh, you know, you have some fairly amazing cards, uh, cards that have a great history with them, with artists that I, I didn't know anything about. I didn't know anything about uh, any of these artists that were there and their interpretation. I mean, you're not going to agree with every interpretation of, 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 of every card. I mean, there's some of these cards I just think are eyesores, but uh, some of the cards have really stood out and some of the artists 
have really stood out to me. Like the, you mentioned the uh, Ermsey Trout. The first time I saw that Ermsey Trout, I didn't know what was going on with that card. It was it was very confusing. It's a blurred out image, and there's clouds, and I I, I didn't I, I didn't I initially didn't like it. But you know, looking at uh, the other Ermsey cards and seeing how they all go together, he's an amazing artist. And if you and it actually took me off his you know off from the cards and looking at his actual art that he has out there, and it's so it's expanded my my horizons. I mean, and even Mr. Cartoon. Uh, he's a uh, you know well-known tattoo artist out uh, in Los Angeles. I didn't know anything about him. There's a Netflix documentary uh, out there about uh, about him and his business partner, and I watched that, and it was just it was phenomenal to learn about these guys and get their interpretations on these cards. So. I think it's, it's reinvigorated my uh, love for the hobby. I've actually gone back and, you know, I didn't have any of the Maguire uh, rookie cards. Uh, I, I got those because it's nice to display the original cards next to the uh, artist's renditions. And it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I, it's brought a lot of people into it. But with that, I think it's brought some problems. And that's, you know, what you're what you're talking about is that. There, there, there was a bubble uh, where the cards just skyrocketed in value. And so initially you had a lot of buyers that had sold the cards for $19, $20, $22. $20. And then three days later, there were several hundred dollars. And initially what you had is you had the buyers then canceling uh, on sellers. And that started, I mean, that was something that was really leaving a, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. But then the bubble burst. And you had at some point everybody was buying these cards. Everybody was thinking, I can buy this for $19 today and I could sell it for $30 tomorrow. I mean, who's not going to you know, make a 50% profit in a day on a product? But it, that wasn't sustainable. So you had a large number of people get into the, get into this, buy the cards, and you know, and they sold them. Uh, they sold them for say 600 bucks. Uh, and then they dropped in value uh, within the 30-day window that uh, eBay allows returns. So you had a lot of eBay uh, buyers returning cards that they bought for $600, which are now worth 30 or, or something like that. So I've had a lot of people ask me, "What are the legal bases here? What you know? What, what can I do?" And uh, it's another introduction to the arbitration agreement because uh, eBay, uh, you sell anything on eBay, you're bound by their arbitration agreement. You can't sue our eBay. You can't get a class action against eBay. Well, typically you can't. You can't. Uh, so you're you're stuck with this arbitration proceeding that you would have to have to proceed on. And the most inquiries I've gotten are from sellers because a lot of sellers uh, uh, purchased a lot of these. There's a lot of you know uh, if, if you buy one card, it's 19 bucks. If you buy a hundred cards or a thousand cards or whatever, it drop. You can get you can get them as low as fourteen dollars. Uh, and I just want to jump in and let the viewers know that the way Tops does this is that they take orders on these cards for I believe it's like two days, and as many as they sell, that becomes the print run at the end of the two day buying window. They cut it off. They take it off the website from a purchasing uh, ability perspective, and they basically flip the screen, put it into the archive, and tell you how many copies were sold, thereby what the print run is. So, and I, I'm familiar, or I've been. I, I my understanding is that a lot of these artists are actually purchasing several of their cards from Tops so that they can then autograph them and sell them to the public, which is a whole other thing. But I'm just letting people know that the artists are buying their own cards. The public's buying their own cards. Paul Lesko is buying the cards. I've probably got 30 of them on the way myself. I like a lot of them. I don't like some. But anyway, I'm sorry to jump in. I'll, I'll let you uh, continue. Yeah. So so uh, with, with the issues with sellers, people are like, well, what are my rights? 
what what can I do here? And, uh, in, in, at least from the seller standpoint, that's the one I have the most sympathy for uh, right now, uh, is the seller who bought the card at 600 bucks, or actually bought the card, sold it for $600, sent it out, performed their purchase, uh, performed their side of the contract, and then the buyer returns it. Not because the card's damaged or not because the card isn't what was pictured, but simply because they have buyer's remorse. Uh, eBay return policies don't allow that. eBay return policies are specific on what can what, what can be returned on. And, uh, you know, the card, you know, if the card wasn't in the same condition or it had damage or it was a different product, you can return it legitimately for that. But when you have a buyer who's, who says, I found it for less somewhere else, so I'm returning it, that's not a sufficient reason. So in instances like that, you know, sellers like, well, what's my recourse? And and really the recourse uh, that I see there, uh, if you want to do it, is, you know, there, there is an eBay arbitration agreement. And uh, if you see, if you believe that eBay has breached its contract with you, is allowing returns that should not happen, uh, you know, don't at ask eBay and complain to them. That's a PR, you know, that's a, you know, that's, that's, that's her marketing. That's her PR right there. You know, if, if you really want uh, justice uh, from them and you think you have a, a good case, begin an arbitration proceeding. Uh, arbitration proceedings are supposed to, um, while they eliminate the ability to go to court, they're supposed to be easy to do. Uh, so, uh, you know, a person can do it themselves or, you know, if you're a reseller, if you've got a lot of these uh, out there and you have some real concerns, you might want to contact a lawyer about that and uh, have a lawyer uh, shepherd you through the arbitration proceedings uh, uh, on there. Now, what doesn't help uh, these instances is TOPS uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, Project 2020 said that these would be a year long product in uh, one touch magnetic cases. That's what they, those are their words, year long one touch magnetic cases. And we all know we're in a different world. When these cards launched, COVID was out there. We didn't realize what it was going to affect, but it, it has changed. It has shut down supply chains. It has limited the amount of people that can work. So there are delays in getting these cards out. And there are also supply shortages. So TOPS, uh, in some instances, is sending out stamp tight uh, uh, cases, not the one touch. Uh, 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 magnetic cases that they promised that would be year long uh, for these cards. Now, one of the concerns there is this gives a buyer a way out. If a buyer bought a, you know, a card for $300 from a seller and that card drops in value, well, if they have buyer's remorse and the card shows up at their house and it's, it's oh, wait, it's not in a one touch, it's in a snap tight, they can return it. That is a legitimate way to return a card on eBay. So uh, this is a great product. Don't get me wrong. This is a great product. I love collecting this product. And, you know, probably some of the fun I have with this product is because it's got legal issues all over it. Uh, so uh, but uh, but, you know, that, you know, it's my way of trying to answer a bunch of concerns that people had. And I'm sure there'll be questions and, you know, whatever the questions are, I'd be happy to try to, you know, happy to, you know, even if your questions are about what's your favorite card, you know, I, I'd be happy to talk about it that way. But, uh, you know, I, I do like this set and I think it's a fun one. And I think it's, you know, good for the hobby. I think it's good for the hobby because it's getting more eyes on it. It's getting art collectors looking at these cards because a lot of these collectors, they couldn't necessarily afford works of art uh, by, you know, by these artists. 
they can afford a $20 card. And even with these autographed cards that the artists are offering, I mean, $200, $300 for an autographed work of art from, you know, from an artist for someone like Ben Baller who makes jewelry and you might not be able to afford a $10,000, $20,000 necklace, but you can afford $320 for an autographed card. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing opportunity. I think it's, it's a great product. Yeah. And to your point about, you know, exposing so many people, not only to the, this is a, it's a cross, it's a genre crossover product, right? It's, it's exposing sports card collectors to artists, you and I both included, 20 artists I'd never heard of before. And now yeah. I'm probably on a piece of each of their art by now, if I were to look at the ones I've already bought, nothing's arrived yet, but I've got <laughs> them coming. Um, and but, but more importantly, and more interesting to, to you and me and the viewers, is that these artists, and I've seen these artists, on Instagram, for example, they all have a large following tops. I think they picked some pretty, they picked a good group of artists here. And these artists have anywhere from like a hundred thousand followers on Instagram to well over a million. Well, even if they have an average of what, say 200,000 followers, that's like still two, that's, that's 4 million potential people that are going to see sports cards that wouldn't have seen them before. And if they're saying, Oh, that's cool. I've heard of Derek Jeter. I've heard of Mike Trout. And this is my favorite artist. I'll buy that card. They're going to get that card in hand. And then they, they might start collecting sports cards. Now, some people watching might say, oh, no, they're not going to start. But it's a numbers game. I mean, if you're talking 4 million people, I guarantee you, I mean, I'll, I'll bet any amount of money that you're going to have people converted to card collecting. And I know for a fact, because I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the Facebook group called the Tops Project 2020 group, because again, I'm into it. I like these cards. So I want to see what's going on. I have seen people make, they're not, now these sports card collectors are posting the original art pieces that they're buying by these artists that have nothing to do with the sports cards that they're doing as part of Tops Project 2020. So we've certainly seen conversion from sports collectors, sports card collectors to art collectors. 100% guaranteed there are art collectors that are that are converting over to sports card collectors. And I think that is wonderful for our hobby because it's bringing more people. A lot of people argue, well, it's just going to drive up the cost of, of the cards because there's more people in it. Well, sure. But for those of us that own cards, we want to see them going up in value. So I think it's an awesome project. I, I like a lot of the cards. There's there's some I don't. And you know what? The nice thing is that you can pick and choose what you want. It's a 400 card set. I don't know who has, I mean, that's a lot of cards in in magnetic one touches or snap tights, whatever you get them in, that's been discussed, but that takes up a lot of room. So um, anyway, really cool product. Uh, interesting to hear your take on sort of some of the legal ramifications of it, which aren't specific to the cards themselves, or they're not inherent in the cards themselves. It's inherent in the transactional activity that's been going on on eBay uh, because of the wild fluctuations in the values of these cards. Yeah, yeah, right. no, it, it's it's a great it's a great product. I like it, and and again, anything that gives rise to legal issues, I mean, it's it, it, that makes it even more collectible for me. Yeah, yeah, okay, man. So listen, we're 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 well past two hours, two hours eight minutes. These episodes always go longer than I think they will. Um, I mean, I gotta say, for everybody watching, um, I think I'm not alone. I I think you guys must feel the same way that this has been. If you've been, if you've sat through this. It's been an amazing episode, Paul. You're you're an awesome guest, man. I'm so glad that you uh, you you were. And I want to let people know that when I reached out to Paul, and Paul's the only guest I think I've had so far, <clears throat> being episode 23, where I really just cold called you. 
I we'd never met before. Pretty much every other guest I've had on is either a, a, a friend of mine or someone, uh, you know, an acquaintance, someone that I know decently well. So I just want to say you were you were so awesome to be more than willing to come on. Um, I can you're excited about it, man, and that's that that's just, that's just really really cool. I'm I'm so happy about that, and I'm I'm super happy that you have you know we talked about it. You're going to come on again. You're going to come on every so often. I, I like to use the term as a regular guest, but I mean I don't want to. Let people think you're not coming on weekly or monthly. You're going to come on every couple months, whatever it is, and give us updates on what's going on in the hobby from the in terms of the legal uh, landscape. And I think that's interesting to everybody. And I'm actually I'm super honored and I feel privileged to host this and to have you do that for us. So thank you on behalf of myself, the show I call Sports Cards Live. I call it Sports Cards Live because I love sports cards and we are live right now. So that's awesome. I'm glad you're going to be a part of it, Paul. Thank you so much for that. Um, before, yeah, and Brian says right here, the enthusiasm really came through. And, you know, I certainly uh, noticed that. And I will say, Paul, we were we were in the studio last night for, I came, I went upstairs. I said, yeah, honey, I was I was with him for like an hour. She goes, no, you were with him for like two hours. So <laughs> we've, we've done four hours in the last two days, just sort of getting to know each other and chatting about this. So um, super thankful, Paul, really am. Thanks for having me on. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed this and um, you know, I'm really happy that we'll be doing it again sometime soon. Yeah, same here for sure. So, okay, before we wrap up, uh, I just want to thank everyone for watching. As always, this is episode 23. Episode 24 is coming out on Wednesday. My guests, as you can see in the ticker, Chris McGill, someone I'm, I'm, I'm extremely excited to have on. He's one of, I'll admit, one of the guys that inspired me to start this show in the first place because I was you know, this is last summer. I'm out there walking, going for my evening walk, and I'm, I've got my, my AirPods in, and I'm listening to his podcast called House of Jordans. A real analytical, real smart guy, um, a lawyer or a soon-to-be lawyer as well, just like Paul, and has started a, a new online sports card valuation tool, I'll call it, card called Card Ladder. He's one of the co-founders. So check all that out. We're going to have a great chat on Wednesday. Um Aside from that, I think that I think we can wrap it up. I, I would do want to call out Bill. Bill says, great show. Thanks, guys. And Bill's the guy who does keep us informed on Hobby Insider as to what Paul is talking about on Twitter. So, Bill, thank you for doing that. Please feel free to continue doing that, even though we're going to have Paul on here again. Yeah. And Paul Cashman says the two hours has flown by. They always fly by for me. Michelangelo. Yeah. He's uh Paul, you're, you practice out of St. Louis, Missouri, correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I, uh, I've lived in uh, St. Louis, Missouri for, uh, since 99. Uh, the only time I was ever out of the Midwest is when I went to law school and, uh, uh, at Tulane, uh, but I went to U of I for, uh, my undergrad. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Midwest guy. Yeah. Awesome. And Richard said, thanks, Jer. Thanks, Paul. Great episode. Thanks, Richard. I hope you got some stuff out of here that you can use moving forward in your projects. Uh, Brian says, Jeremy, you the man. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I really felt like part of the conversation. Keep it up. Love your show, man. Thank you. That, that, that's why I do it. That's why I do it. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you for tuning in. Glad you guys enjoyed it. Paul, stay right there. We're going we're gonna to end this for the night. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Tune in again Wednesday. It's going to be another great episode. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Thanks, everybody. I'm just waiting for it to tell me we're off the air. <laughs> it isn't telling me that. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.